בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, great to be back in Aventura. ברוך השם, we've had some uh, amazing success with the shiurim, the few shiurim that we did in this house. The, uh, the clip we did here a few weeks ago, I think maybe a month ago, about the prophecy about uh, Messianic Judaism has been, ברוך השם, a major hit. It's got thousands and thousands of views, uh, even without the movie, even without Sonny making the movie. So, uh, but, uh, when there's, uh, when there's Kedusha in the house, there's extra Siat Lishmaya. So, today, Shior, I can tell you from experience of doing the Shior for the last, um, I guess, few years, sometimes you have a traditional Shior, and, you know, studying and Yetzirah is always gets in the way. But once in a while, there's an extra amount of Yetzirah. Once in a while, there is a uh, extra Satan, and I expect, and this this particular shoe has had an extra amount of Satan in it, and the reason why is because the topic is going to create some fireworks, Bezat Hashem. We're not going, we're not trying to create fireworks for the sake of just creating fireworks. We're creating fireworks because we have to tell the truth, and sometimes the truth. It's a little painful to hear. So, anyway, as we uh, continue our Musar Pirkei Avot series, we see that every time we're learning, Baruch Hashem, with Siyat Dishmaya, we have uh, Hashem is connecting it to the issues at hand that we have to learn anyway, aside from the Mishnah itself, but also the things that are going on around the world, the things that are happening in our lives. And uh, this Mishnah is no different. As uh, you guys know, if you've been following the Facebook or some of the news articles out there, the Balagan with that uh, is not you can't really call him a rabbi anymore, uh, Joseph Dweck has uh, continued to cause a lot of uh, chaos in the Jewish world. Um, to such an extent that uh, both the Rishon Etzion, Rabbi Tzach Yosef, the head rabbi in the Sephardic world, and his brother, Rav David Yosef, who was also one of the Gedolei Adol, both wrote le- and published letters putting Cherem on Joseph Dweck, saying he's... Uh, cannot call the Rav, cannot be called a Rabbi, he's no longer allowed to teach, we should not allow him to be ahead of a Keilah, and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, simply a disaster for his career. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with the story, we're not really going to go into the full details of it, but in so many words... The Maasim, the actions of uh, Joseph Dweck over the last several years is, uh, you know, were not exactly 100% kosher to begin with. It's not like he was a, uh, the big, you know, Tzadik Yesod Olam throughout his entire career, and uh, he just made one bad lecture and everybody's flipping out. This has been an ongoing issue from the people that uh, I've spoken to that, that are much more familiar with it. Uh, plus, with seeing some of his uh, past, you know, clips of his past lectures and some issues that he's discussed, things that he said, 
Um, it, uh, it appears that this has been an ongoing issue for many, many years. It's been an ongoing issue with him for many, many years. And uh, the recent lecture that he published and gave in a room of uh, 150, 200 people uh, in his keilah uh, simply was the straw that broke the camel's back uh, because the words that he said, the language that he used was completely unacceptable according to all Torah standards, according to all alachot in the real Torah Judaism world called Orthodox, called whatever you want. According to Torah law, whether you want to look at the Shulchan Aruch, you want to look at the Rambam, you want to look at pretty much any halacha, any, any, any um, real posek that has uh, discussed this specific issue of homosexuality, uh, and even just the way to communicate to the tzibu, to the public, uh, this behavior was unacceptable. Now, as of course we know, he's not the only one that talks like this. We've heard situations like this before. I told you guys, I think maybe uh, a year ago or so, there was a conservative rabbi, which obviously we don't really consider a rabbi, but nonetheless, he still, his keilah considers him a rabbi, that wrote an article about a year ago, uh, which I believe actually the Baal Atabait here sent me that article, um, wrote an article about a year ago about homosexuality saying, I don't think Hashem meant it when he said that it's not allowed to be a homosexual. He wrote it, yeah, he wrote it in his Torah, but I don't think he meant it. I think it was like, you know, it was only kidding. It's like, nah, it's like, Hashem is really nice, He's all loving, He's all this. There's no way that He would have meant to say that you're not allowed to do something like that. As if it's like He's saying you're not allowed to give tzedakah. There's no way that Hashem would not allow to give tzedakah. You know, people are like, they're, they're making it like, it's such a natural thing to be a homosexual that how could Hashem not allow it? Which has shown us how low our generation has gone to to such an extent that we've become very close, very close to Mitzrayim, if not worse. Very close to what happened in Mitzrayim, where Chazal tells us that one of the ways that um, in uh, the Rambam, in Sefer Kedoshim, talks about the Al-Khav, uh, you're not allowed to be homosexual, you're not allowed to be uh, lesbian, why? Because Maase Mitzrayim, it's the behavior of the Egyptians, where over there, man would marry men, a woman would marry woman, or one woman would marry two men. Shem Rachem. And there was an article actually that just came out a few days ago, where one guy published to the world, he lives in Texas, Probably he's originally from the UK, but he published to the world that he's married to two women. Now, according to the Torah, a man is allowed to marry more than one woman if his original wife permits it. Not like the uh, Arabs that uh, marry 500 women with or without their knowledge, with or without their desires. Hey, you, you looked at me? Okay, you're married. No. In Judaism, there's obviously we're civilized. We're talking about if the original wife you sign a ketubah with, permit you to marry another wife, you're allowed to marry it. But Chazal, about a thousand years ago, 
forbid it. it. said, you're no longer allowed to marry more than one wife in most customs today. There are some customs still that still uh, uh, marry multiple wives, like in the uh, Yemenites and just different parts of the world that haven't seen as much development as, let's say, the eastern or the western part of the world, uh, like Israel or, or, or the United States. But nonetheless, the vast majority of Judaism, it's not allowed, it's no longer allowed to marry more than one woman. It's, it's a, a tikkun, but according to the Torah, you are. So why is there a hypocrisy here? Why is a man allowed to marry more than one woman according to the Torah, but a woman is not allowed to marry more than one man? The simple explanation is, because if a man married more than one woman, you'll always know who the father is. If a woman married more than one man, you'll never know who the mother is. You'll never know who the father is. So that's one. Second thing is, a woman is a queen. She has to be treated as such. You cannot have a queen be promiscuous. And many, many, many other reasons. But nonetheless, this is the simple explanation. This is not the issue at hand. But in this article, this guy was publicizing that he's a polygamist. He married more than one woman. There was also some, uh, I don't know, advertising... Uh, that said that there's going to be some show on television, Baruch Hashem, we don't want television, but uh, there's some To'avat Hashem type of show on TV coming on soon, a reality show that uh, says that the guy is uh, married to multiple wives, and he's going to tell the world how he's married to so many wives. So polygamy is becoming acceptable again in modern society. Now what's the difference between the polygamy of the Torah versus the polygamy in this article? Now, if you actually read the article, you'll see that the guy says, yes, he's married to these two women, but they still are intimate with other people outside of the relationship. Meaning they're not loyal to each other. It's not really a marriage. It's just a lustrous relationship that they call marriage. That's forbidden in the Torah. That's Torah Hashem. That's disgusting. That you're acting like animals, like beasts. Even, even the lion has one wife. The lion has one wife. The dove has one wife. But you have two, and it's not enough for you. You want more. And the wives also want more. So it's not like just the guy is going and, you know, getting other girlfriends, Hashem Elohim, but the women also. They said, oh, just lately we haven't been able to do it because we're busy because we're trying to have a kid. Hashem Elohim. So the world is crazy, and I'm not trying to, excuse me for it, for this... Uh, open language that I'm talking about, uh, but I'm trying to embellish the point that the world is upside down. Everything that would seem normal is no longer normal. And everything that's acceptable is completely forbidden. So when someone says that they are a Jew, they have to know what it means to be a Jew. Can't just say I'm a Jew because my mom was Jewish. Okay, your mom was Jewish, but if you are an idol worshiper, you're no longer a Jew. Your mom is Jewish. Good for her. You are an idol worshiper. So, to be a Jew, according to the Torah, means you have to follow the Torah. Why? Because before Mount Sinai, we weren't called Jews. We were called Bnei Israel. Am Yisrael, we're called Am Yisrael, we weren't called, we weren't called Jews. Jews were only after we received the Torah. 
what we were called Bnei Israel after we received the Torah. Later on uh, in, uh, in Megillat Esther, we were called uh, uh, Jews. But nonetheless, Judaism did not start until Mount Sinai. What changed at Mount Sinai? Torah. Meaning, without Torah, there is no Judaism. So, when someone is saying, I'm a Jew, they have to first and foremost understand what it actually means to be a Jew. You have to follow the Torah. Okay, so now, once you, we've discovered that, once we've established that point, next point is, okay, are you following this Torah? If you're following the Torah, great, so that means you have to follow the entire Torah. You can't say, which is, blessed are you Hashem, king of the world, except me. You're king of the entire world, except me. Everyone else, you're a king of them, but not me. Me, let me do whatever I want. Blessed are you Hashem, king of the world. You can, you created the world, you gave panasah, you did this, you did that. You're amazing Hashem, king of the world. Just don't tell me what to do. You can't make him a king of kings, but don't tell me what to do. If he's the king of kings, if he's the creator of all creation, he's your king too. Right? So your king wrote in his Torah, homosexuality is 100% forbidden. To such an extent, it has an extra curse on it. It's an extra abomination. It's considered disgusting in the eyes of Hashem. It's not just forbidden, it's considered disgusting. Now Hashem is the creator. Rarely does He say things are disgusting. He created it. So when He says this is disgusting, He's saying that what you're doing when you are either uh, being a homosexual or you're actually committing bestiality, Hashem is saying you are going against the nature that I instilled in the world. I instilled certain nature, you're going the opposite. Now if you notice... Every single time, and I've checked this, and you can check this yourself, every single time, whether it's uh, Deuteronomy or in Vayikra, every time it's mentioned in the Torah, the sin of homosexuality, the very next verse, the very next verse talks about the sin of bestiality. Bestiality is Hashem Elachem, a man a woman with an animal. Well, is this a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that homosexuality and bestiality are always next to each other? No, obviously we know. What do we learn from this? We learn that in the eyes of Hashem, both are considered abomination and both are considered the same in, in Hashem's eyes. Baruch Hashem, today we're still somewhat normal, but we don't think it's the same. We think that being with an animal is horrendous. But being with an homosexual is celebrated. So we're like, katsele katse, one quarter to the other. If we just go to the middle, we see what the Torah says, we're in good shape. But until we get there, we just need to understand where we are where, in comparison to where the Torah is. So now, the fact that homosexuality is forbidden, the fact that the Torah says a person that's homosexual or, fulfill, or does bestiality is, gets the death penalty. Doesn't allow us to hate them. It's not a mitzvah to hate homosexuals. It's not a mitzvah to abuse them. It's not a mitzvah to insult them. It's not a mitzvah to beat them up. No. No one ever said that. It's not a mitzvah to be insensitive. 
In fact, it's a mitzvah to do all the opposite. To try to help them, to get them closer to Hashem, to get them to stop sinning, to get them to learn the truth, to get them to become more in line with the normalcy of the Torah, more in line with the normalcy of what Hashem wants. But the Mishnah we're going to learn is going to teach us just how to do it. Now many have tried and failed miserably teaching in a different way. What they tried to do is the opposite of what Aaron Cohen did. If you remember, in the earlier Mishnah, I believe it's uh, Aleph Yudbet, it says, that we should be like the, the disciples of Aaron Cohen, who loves peace, pursues peace, loves people, and brings them closer to the Torah. Brings them closer to the Torah. So many people in our generation are saying, listen, we welcome homosexuals, we welcome uh, the uh, non-Jews, we welcome the intermarried, we welcome everybody. Everybody's welcome to the shul, we'll have fun together. That's not what it says. They say, no, no, we're bringing them closer to the Torah. No, no, my friend. What you're doing is you're bringing the Torah to their level. You're bringing the Torah down to them. You're saying, you're all acceptable as you are. Everyone's a tzaddik, everyone's navon, everyone will accept you as you are. That's not what Aaron Cohen did. Aaron Cohen said, Mekarvan la Torah, meaning he brings people closer to the Torah. Meaning the Torah is high, he brings them higher. Not he brings the Torah lower. To fit your needs, to fit your desires, to fit your low life uh, mental mental state of mind. If we're going to continuously bring the Torah down, there's no Torah. We have a math book. So this has happened many times and continues to happen. And Joseph Dweck is not the first to do it. What he tried to do and failed miserably at it, is he tried making the Torah look like it's a one-size-fits-all. It's open to translation. You could do what you want with it. You can modernize it. You could do this. You could do that. Just make it fit to the people. Just learn a few psukim a week. Learn Pashat Shavua like you're doing Hashem a favor. Just learn a few psukim, learn a few things, Hashem will be happy with you. Yeah, what about doing it? What about doing what it says? No, no, he doesn't mean this, he doesn't mean that, he doesn't mean this. Mesalef. So he takes pieces of this, pieces of that, pieces of this, takes different pieces. This one matches Steve. This one matches Dave. This one matches Simcha. This one matches Betzalel. This one, he takes pieces. Okay, fine. So these are all nice pieces, but what about... Can each person use the other guy's piece? No, no, no. Betzalel, no, he's the one. He's definitely not going to be homosexual. But this other guy, he is. So we're not going to tell him about it. So what are you doing? You're just making shakshuka out of, out of a holy document. That's not Torah. So first and foremost, for all students and for all teachers, to know and to understand, the Torah is not one size fits all. The Torah is divine. Meaning, it's one way. 
Hashem wrote it, Hashem put laws. Yes, there are different debates of how to fulfill the certain laws to the best of our ability, whether Bet Shammai is right or Bet Hillel is right about what the perfect time is to do Kriyat Shema. But there's no debate of whether you should do Kriyat Shema or not. It's just how to do it. There's no, there's no debate of whether keeping Shabbat is an obligation or not. Just what's the best way to do it? There's no debate of whether homosexuality is forbidden or it's allowed. There's no debate. It says outright in the Torah a few times, not allowed. No debate. If you read the Psukim, it says not allowed. If you read the Alachot, not allowed. It's never allowed. There's no debate of whether idol worship is allowed or not. It's no debate. It's the first commandment, Ten Commandments. I am God. That took you out of Egypt. I'm the only one. There's no one else. That's it. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin the relationship between me and you. By bringing some middleman in. There's no debate. How to honor God the best way. Whether you should pray to Him with full kavanah. To three prayers a day if that's enough. Or you need to do it Buddha Dut also. Or you need to do this. Or... The way to honor Hashem and sanctify His name the best possible way, there's different opinions. But the fact that you have to have only one God, there's no debate. So the key is that if you look at the teachings of our sages and the holy people that have lived throughout the Jewish history, you see that they've always brought the people higher to the level of the Torah, not the Torah lower. The only ones that have ever brought the Torah lower were called reform, conservative, maskilim, Sadducees, Karaites, all types of things that are forbidden, all types of things that are considered 100% kfirah. Now again, this doesn't mean you go out and you start throwing out rocks at every mechalel Shabbat, or every person that just does, is a homosexual. Try to bring him closer. Try to bring him to the shiur. Try to help him understand the truth. But don't try to recruit him inside of a club. Because you're the one that has the problem then. You're a bigger kofel than he is. Why? Because you know the truth, but you still go to the club. He doesn't know the truth, Miskin. You understand? So, first and foremost, rule of thumb, we don't bring the Torah lower. We bring people higher. Now, how... Now that that's a much more difficult, it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult for me to sit here and tell you guys the truth of what Hashem said than for me to tell you, you know what, Betzalel, you're the biggest tzaddik in the world. Just looking at you gives me Roha Kodesh. Amos, you don't have to do tshuva. Amos, you're perfect. You're a perfect human being. Hashem broke the mold when He made you. And each one of you, tzaddik, navon, this, that, amazing, is it yofi, is it, oh, tanug, it's, I don't even need to do, you should do shiur. I want to look at you only. Because you said to tzaddik. You don't have to do tshuva bechlal. Don't give tzedakah, don't, don't do anything. Hashem, you're the Mashiach, maybe. Maybe you're the Mashiach. It's so amazing. If I was like that, money would start running at me. Running, chasing me. Chasing me. Why? Who doesn't want to hear compliments all day? 
Who doesn't want to hear, oh, I'm so cl-. Every time I go to this rabbi, he tells me a tzaddik. I go home, my wife yells at me. I go home, my husband yells at me. I go to work, the boss yells at me. I go to work, the customer yells at me. The only guy that gives me compliments is my rabbi. I'm going to go to my rabbi. I'm going to give him everything I have. Oh, rabbi, this IRA account, I don't need it anymore. You're the beneficiary. Oh, this 401k, yeah. My kids, yeah, let them make their own money. I'm going to give it to you. Let me make their own money. You tell me I'm a tzaddik. You tell me I'm a navon. You tell me I'm amazing. What do I need to give anybody any money for? You're the best thing in the world. All day you give me compliments. Shem Shem So, Chazal, Chazal told us a few things about such people. Chazal told us a few things about such people. Shlomo Amelich, wisest man that ever lived. In the book of Proverbs, Chapter 28, verse 23. One who rebukes a person will later find favor more than one with a flattering tongue. Translation. A person who rebukes you, Hashem is saying, I like him. The one who rebukes you, I like him. He's going to be much more helpful to you than the one that's just going to give you flattering, tell you you're a tzaddik, you're amazing, you're great, you're this, you're that. He's not helping you at all. All he's going to do is help you go to Gainon. Tell you you're already perfect. If you're already perfect, why are you doing tshuva? Why are you even coming to Shiyot Rabichlal? Turn it off, put on a movie. If you're already perfect, why are you watching this? Why are you here, Bichlal? Why are you even opening the book? You're already Mashiach. He says, the one that rebukes you, that tells you the things that are difficult to hear, and they're true, not just difficult to hear because he wants to abuse you. It's not coming out of Gava. He's telling you things. That's what it says in the Torah. It's hard for you to hear. He's telling you, listen, enough with this waking up at 11 o'clock. Enough. Enough with this laziness. Enough with this no learning Torah. Enough with the mistreatment of your wife. Enough with the misbehavior at work. Enough with the stealing. Enough with all this garbage behavior that you have. Enough. It's time to do tshuva. It's time to act like a Jewish human being. That guy is telling you things that are hard to hear. Hurts a little bit. Hurts. Nobody likes to get rebuked. Nobody likes to get rebuked. No one. No one likes to hear the truth. But he says, him, I like him. Why? He's going to have to do tshuva. He's going to bring you closer to me. He's going to bring you closer to me. The guy that's flattering you, telling you it's a dig, navon, everything, he's bringing you to gain on. Not gonna help you at all. The Sifret Sadikim, Sifret Hasidim, says the following. It was written by Rabbi Yehuda Bar Shmuel. A Hasid Mishapira, who was a Gdolador, about 900 years ago. It says, Those who 
and he uses Tehillim 49.15. He says, the speakers were speaking to people, not for Shem Shamayim, not for the honor of Hashem, but just to convince them to give staka. How do you convince people to give staka? How do you convince people to like you? How do you convince people to pay attention, subscribe to your YouTube channel, come to your Bit Knesset? How? You bring the Torah down to them. Torah says homosexuality not allowed. You say, no, it's not so bad. The act is not so good, but feelings are not so bad. What? What do you mean? You start calling the Sibu. You start making it like it's not so bad to drive on Shabbat if you're driving to Beknesset. It's not so bad to eat not kosher as long as it's not in your house, outside. Outside, nobody sees you. It's on me, don't worry. I'll buy for you. It's not so bad if you look a little bit at a woman here and there. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. Everybody looks. That's what they act. Everybody looks. You're just human. Hashem knows you're human. He knows your flaws. He knows your limitations. Making like everything's okay because you're such a weak, enabled person. You're borderline retarded. So you can't do anything on your own. You can't do tshuva. You can't do mitzvot. You're incapable. So Hashem understands that you're incapable. So might as well just, eh, it's okay, don't worry. No, my friend. That guy, Sefer Chassidim. So nobody says, oh, this guy, Machmir, Machmir. Sefer Chassidim, there's the ones, the Chassidim. He says, that one, he goes to Gehenom, the speaker that says that. Goes to Genom to such an extent as it says in the Gemara Masechet Rosh page seventeen. Genom, their Genom, will never end. The world will end, but their Genom never ends. Why? Because they destroyed Neshamot. They're worse than murderers. Murderer at least killed the body. This one told everybody, everybody's tzaddik, everybody's nabon, everybody's great, everybody's this, everybody's that. He destroyed the Neshama forever. He's worse than a murderer. Murder took a body. He took a soul. So, it's not that Joseph Dweck or anybody like him is on some uh, list of people that we're trying to pinpoint. Who cares about him or any of his friends? It's that they all are part of a prophecy. Now, what's the prophecy? If you remember... A few weeks ago, we had a prophecy from 4,000 years ago. From Yaakov Avinu, who said, at the end of times, which we know he talks about the end of times, and he knew about the end of times, because before he died, he told his sons, come, let me tell you about the end of times. Meaning that Yaakov Avinu knew about the end of times. So in Parashat Vayishlach, he already gave us a prophecy in the verse, in chapter 32, verse 12, which we learned from there, he says, rescue me please from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. And we learn from there that he means hand of my brother and Esav is the same thing it's supposed to be. So what does it mean? When it's my brother, it's Esav, I know where it is. 
because he's a murderer. So I know it's Rome. I know it's Nazi Germany. I know it's the Greeks. I know them. What am I, why is he saying, rescue me from the hand of my brother from Esau? Why is the hand first? Because the hand is scarier. Why? Because that is the brother that I don't know. I don't know that he's a Rasha. He looks good to me. That's the Messianics. That's the ones that are Christian. That's the ones that are trying to infiltrate with Christianity into the Jewish world. But my friends, the Zohar Kadosh says that Erev Rav has five different levels. And the one that we talked about is just the first level. What's the second level? What's the most dangerous level? Yaakov Avinu also gave us that prophecy. In Parashat Toldot, even before he told us about the Messianics, he told us about the other Erev Rav. In Parashat Toldot, chapter 27, verse 22. When Yaakov Avinu comes to get a blessing from his father, pretending to be a Sav. So he puts the uniform, the jacket of Esav. And the story goes that Yitzchak touches his arm, sees his hair, but he hears his voice, and he says, Akol kol Yaakov, The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the, but the hands, the arms, are the arms of Esav. So what's the Chidush? The Chidush here, that Chazal, Rashi specifically, says that it's already known among the sages that the voice of Esav and the voice of Yaakov were identical. They were the same. Meaning there was no way for Yitzchak Avinu to discern the difference between Yaakov's voice and Esav's voice. So what does he mean? The voice of the voice of, of Yaakov, but the arms are of Esav. Uh, he says it's the way they talked. The way Yaakov, Avinu, Tzaddik, Navon, prophet of prophets, what, how did he talk? He talked Kedusha. He was someone that would learn Torah all day. Beautiful language, beautiful words. Kedusha coming out of his mouth like diamonds. Esav, was somebody killing and murdering like it was nobody's business. So he talked like a truck driver. He knew the halachot. And he promised every day to do tshuva, but he didn't do tshuva. That's why Hashem says, et Esav saneti. Esav, I hate him. Why? Because he promised every day to do tshuva. He never did tshuva. Promised every day I'm going to go to Minyan, net. never went. He promised every day I'm going to learn Torah, never learned. Every day promised, made every day made promises. Every day made promises, never the tshuva. Esav Saneti. Saneti, I hate him. He, Hashem didn't say, I hate Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed by the Mikdash. He didn't say, I hate Haman. He didn't say, I hate Paro. These people killed millions of people. Esav Saneti, he says. Why? He made empty promises. But here, Chazal is telling us, Akol kol Yaakov Esav. There's no difference in the voice. So what do you mean the voice is the voice of Yaakov? The Chidush here 
is that Yaakov Avinu is giving us a prophecy. He says, who is the most dangerous? It's the one that sounds like Yaakov, but has the actions of Esav. He sounds like Yaakov gives a rabbi of a keilah and his 300 people going, a thousand people going, and he's a dayan, and he's a this, and he has articles, and he has a blog, and he says nice words, and he went to a university, and he reads a lot of books, and he has great vocabulary. A korkor Yaakov! But he permits homosexuality, and to'avat Hashem, and chilul Shabbat, and all those things. That's someone you have to be. That's someone you have to be careful from. Why? Can't tell the difference. Who's a rasha? Who's a tzaddik? How you know who's a rasha? Who's a tzaddik? How do you know? You learn this mishnah. So we're finally going to get to the mishnah. So mishnah in Avot tells us how can we tell if a rabbi is tzaddik or rasha? How can we tell if the Torah that they're teaching is pure or tamim? Because all Chaim HaKadosh says, if the Torah that's being taught is tamim, it's being taught by a min, you have to burn it. It's a mitzvah to burn it. Mitzvah to burn it. Just like a mitzvah, mitzvah to burn that Torah. A min, writes the Sefer Torah, Rambam says, burn it. Mitzvah. Mitzvah like tefillin. I mean, well, goy, if it's just a goy, not idol worshiper, you bury it. But if it's a mean, which could be Jew or non-Jew, he's a mean. He goes and he gets other people to go do idol worship. Goes, tells people that it's okay to be a homosexual. Go tell people it's okay to drive on Shabbat. He's a mean. He's someone that gets other people to sin. He writes Sefer Torah, holy Sefer Torah. It's a mitzvah to burn it. Mitzvah. Oh, Haim, Kadosh. So how do you know the difference? Everybody sounds the same. Everybody reads the book. Everybody says, I quote the Talmud, I quote the Dismud, and not more than that, Yerushalmi, and Babli, and Sefer Tzadiki. Everybody's a Tzadik, everybody reads books, everybody has a lot of books. How do you know the difference? How? Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, Omer, Kol shirat cheto kodelmet lechokhmato, Chokhmato mitkayemet. Vekol shechokhmato kodelmet lirat cheto, En chokhmato mitkayemet. Rabbi Hanan ben Dosa Omer, anyone whose fear of sin is Yirat Shamayim takes precedence over his wisdom, over his chokhmah, is more important to him to be afraid of Hashem, have Yirat Shamayim, than his knowledge in Torah. First Yirat Shamayim, then Torah. He says his wisdom will endure. That's real Torah. That Torah, it's real Torah. But anyone whose wisdom takes precedence over their fear of sin. Anyone that says, no, no, I read a lot of books, just not Yirat Shamayim. I know all the books by heart. I know all the halachot by heart. I know all the books by heart. I know this one and that one, and I could quote you secular books and, and non-secular books, and this book and that book. I could t- tell you all the details about art. I could tell you all the details about history. I could tell you 15 different languages. Everything. Yirat Shamayim? No, that's not for me. He says, that... That Torah is not Torah. It's not Torah. It's not Torah. Now, who is this Rabbi Hanina that he's saying this? Why should we listen to him? It's Rabbi Hanina, like any rabbi today. 
Okay, he was poor. There's a lot of poor people today. So the Gemara, Masichet Tani, page 25, says a bunch of different stories. And also, Brachot, page 33. A bunch of stories about Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Each story is better than the other. In so many words, you see that the life of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was a life full of miracles. Miracles to us, nature to him. Meaning, to us we look at it, it's like, oh, it's miraculous, how is this even happening? To him it was normal. This is the way it's supposed to be. When his daughter made a mistake and she switched, instead of oil, she put vinegar. She bought vinegar to light the Shabbat candles. Famous story in Masechet Shabbat. Masechet Anit, I'm sorry. And she started being upset. He's like, my dear, why are you so upset? She goes, oh, I made a mistake. I filled up the canister that's supposed to be for Nerot Shabbat with vinegar, not oil. So we're not going to have candles for Shabbat. Shabbat's about to come in. So Rabbi Khalina says, My dear, why are you so worried? The same God that decided that the oil is something to burn fire for Shabbat will decide that the vinegar will be oil to burn for Shabbat. What's different to him? This one's liquid, that one's liquid. This one is creation, this one is his creation. To you it's different, to him it's the same thing. His belief was to that extent, she went, she lit, Perfectly, nothing changed. This one lit fire. This one lit fire. Go, go try light vinegar. Good luck. Go try light some vinegar. Go tell your wife. Tell your wife, honey, I brought you special oil for Shabbat to throw you out before Shabbat. Go back to the store. Am Israel had a uh, deadly snake, some say, or some type of reptile in the town. Was killing people. But they didn't know how to catch it. So they went and they told Rabbi Hanina. So Rabbi Hanina says, Show me, tell me, tell me where he is. Where is this reptile? He said, Oh, he's in over here, he's in this hole. So Rabbi Hanina, you, what would you do? In a hole. What do you do? You put a trap, you wait there, get a machete in your hand, a spear in the other hand, get ready for the guy to come out, and you kill him. If you're a hunter, me, I, I stand and watch you. I'm scared. You're brave. Rabbi Chayna is different. What Rabbi Chayna did? He put his leg inside the hole. He put his leg inside the hole, waiting for this thing to bite him. It bit him and died. The snake bit Rabbi Chayna and the snake died. He takes it out of the hole, dead. He shows here. This is to show all of you that it's not the snake that kills people. The sin kills people. Meaning, I didn't sin, he says. So why would the snake kill me? You that died, you didn't die because of the snake. Hashem just used the snake as a tool. He just used the snake as a tool. I didn't sin. So he's not going to kill me. He's going to die. He's going to die. I'm not going to die. I didn't sin, he says. If anybody died, it's because you're a sinner. 
The sin kills, not the snake. Did he die? No, he didn't die. The snake died. No, but I mean, he died. Eventually. Eventually. That's only died, Chazal says, only died eventually. That was one of the, one of the um, difficult times of Am Yisrael. During one of the difficult times of Am Yisrael. But as far as that specific action, he didn't die. This is in Brachot, page 33a. So we see here, and there's other amazing stories. You open Masechet Ta'anit, Brachot, a few of these things. You read the stories of Rabbi Chaynai. It's like, this is life of miracles. Life of miracles. So this very same person that Namash lived a miracle after miracle every single day, that a bat call, a bat call, a heavenly voice came from Shemaim and said the whole world is eating and has parnasah all because of the merits of my son, Rabbi Khalina ben Dosa. Everyone eats because of his merits, not because of their merits. And he doesn't eat because he's machmir on, its, on himself. He doesn't eat. He only eats kuvim from one week to the other. We wouldn't eat breakfast, Kovim. I don't even know how to say it in English. These things breaks your teeth. Yeah. Rocks or something. I don't know. It's something that's not. It's not supposed to be edible. Point is that Rabbi Chayna is living on nothing. The whole world is getting panasa because of him. But called in a command of voice. Talk about us. Talk about Rabbi Chayna. So now Rabbi Hanina is saying, why? Why did I get all these miracles? Why was all of this normal to me? To you it's not normal. To me it's not normal. Why? Because we're regular people. We don't know anything. What do we know, Bechlal? We know how to read Mishnah Bikoshi. He says, to me, I read Shlomo HaMelech says in Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, beginning of wisdom, Yirat Shemayim. Fear of Hashem. Beginning. You can't say you have any wisdom at all until you have Yirat Hashem. I read it, he says. I believed it. Well, I believed it like we believe it. Oh, he came to the Shiul. Believe it meaning became his bloodline. Became his everything. Became his DNA. And he's saying, so when I learned, I didn't learn just so I could become, I could become knowledgeable. I didn't learn all the halachot so I could tell people I know all the halachot. I didn't learn the Shulchan Aruch so I could know the whole Shulchan Aruch by heart and I could tell people Saif this, Saif that, Evan Ezer, this one Ezer, that. No! I didn't learn Gemara to start quoting pages so I look smart. So I didn't learn for that. I learned because I was so scared of the Creator I knew that I can't do anything that would damage my relationship with Him. I learned my Torah because of my fear of Hashem Itbarach. Not, I learned Torah because I feared what people think about me. The fear of Hashem came first. And that's why my Torah was fulfilled. What does it mean my Torah was fulfilled? Hashem fulfilled the Torah, all the promises and the blessings that He said in the Torah, He fulfilled for me. He says, if you do things that are beyond your nature, I'll do things beyond my nature. Meaning, for everybody else, they have to 
work within the nature that I created for them because they're regular people. You did things that are beyond nature. I'll make nature just for you, custom made. Why? Because you didn't learn Torah to start quoting verses. You learned Torah because of Yilat Shamayim. The foundation of your Torah was pure. Once your foundation of your Torah is pure, you're, you're in a different league, my friend. So this very same Rabbi Chana ben Dosa is telling you, you want miracles? Work on Yilat Shamayim. Don't work on going to Kabbalist. Don't work on getting different cameo, doing strange things, strange rings, strange this. All these people put strings on them, think they're, everything's going to be okay. Put a red string, you're going to be a tzaddik now. You read Tehilim 800 times, you're a tzaddik now. What about Chilul Shabbat? What about modesty? What about eating kosher? What about the basic level alachot? What about that? No, 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 I read Tehilim once a month, three times, it's fine. Who told you this? Oh, the same guy gives tzaddikatu. The guy gives tzedakah, he tells me, just come to my shiur once a month to, so you can give the tzedakah. If you don't want to come to shiur, it's okay. Just make sure the tzedakah comes. Make sure the tzedakah comes. Everything's okay. I'll get you. I'll, I'll take you out of gain. No. You know, some people say, as long as you give tzedakah, this so-and-so rabbi said, he'll take you out of gain. Yeah, you, what, he sent you an email from, from, from Ganeid and he sent you? He told you this? Where did he say that? Where does he say it? Shtuyot that people talk about. So, first and foremost, he says, the foundation of your learning must be based on Yerat Shemayim. Must be. Once your foundation is Yerat Shemayim, then the Chokhmah that you're getting, the knowledge that you're gaining from the Torah, come to life. You'll retain your knowledge because you're living it. You're living the Torah. You're learning to do. You learn Alachot Shabbat so you can keep Shabbat. You learn the different laws of Kedusha so you can fulfill all the things that are related to it whether it be marital relations going to the Mikveh all types of things. You're learning it to do. But if you're not learning it to do, or if you're just learning it just to maybe, you're going to do maybe not. If it fits, I'll do it. If it doesn't fit, I won't do it. That means that there's a serious ingredient missing. What's the ingredient? It's called Yirat Shamayim. If there's no Yirat Shamayim in your Torah, he says, En Chochmato Mitkayemet. In Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 13b, it says, a sipur, it says a story from Eliyahu Navi. The prophets say that Hashem is going to send Eliyahu Navi three days before Mashiach. Why? He's going to tell us, guys, Mashiach is coming. There's not going to be any guests. It's not going to be he died, he came back, he went on vacation for 2,000 years. None of that garbage. Mashiach is coming in three days. First time, last time. Whoever's on the train already, you're okay. You're not on the train, I'm sorry. Just know that you have three days to live. Three-day notice for the Benoni, the guy that's 50-50. Keeping halachot, but not exactly the best. So the Yawn Avi, Masechet Shabbat says, there was once a Talmid Chacham. Talmid Chacham, what's Talmid Chacham? Talmid Chacham, somebody knows Torah. But they don't mention him by name. 
Why? He wasn't at a level of reviving the dead, and he also wasn't up to standard. And we'll learn why from this story. There's one that's a Tamit Chacham, who died young. And his wife would come with the books of Torah that he had to the Bet Midrash. She'd come to the Tzadikim, she's like, look, your Torah says if you fulfill the Torah, you have a long life. How do you explain my husband dying at such a young age? And the Chachamim didn't answer her. They didn't answer her. They didn't know what they're going to say. Poor woman, miskena. Husband died, 25, 26 years old. What are you going to tell the lady? Miskena. So the Yawa Navi says, one time I came down, after he became already a malach, he would come. They had the schut in those days, as the Navi. But he came as, not as the Yawa Navi, he came as like a chacham, but not, no one knew he's a Yawa Navi. And he says, and I went to this woman, I said to her, why are you so upset? She goes, you said in the Torah, you learn Torah, you fulfill the Torah, you have long life. How do you explain my husband? So the Yawanavi says, when you were together at the time of the month when you were Nida, what would your husband do? He goes, no, Shalom, my husband wouldn't. Of course he wouldn't touch me. So what would, what would you do? Where would you sleep? Where would he sleep? He goes, no, no. We just slept in the same bed. We slept in the same bed. And we ate meals together, but we never touched. We never touched. Eliyahu Navi says, Baruch Hashem that he killed him. Baruch Hashem that he killed him. Why Baruch Hashem he killed him? He said he didn't, not allowed to be with your wife when she's Nida. He said he didn't do it. Not allowed to be with your wife when she's Nida. She said he didn't do it. He didn't touch me once. We just slept in the same bed. We just ate meals together. Yawanavi says, Baruch Hashem, he killed him. Why? He had no Yerat Shemayim. No Yerat Shemayim where he says, puts himself in front of a test. How does he know he's not going to fail the test and sleeping with you in the same bed? How does he know? Why, he's so confident of his Chokhmah. He's so confident of the Halachot that he learned that day. He's not going to fail the test. There's no Yerat Shemayim. Baruch Hashem, he killed him. Baruch Hashem, he fulfilled the Torah. Why? No, you got Shemaim, you have no Torah, it's not worth anything. Now, in today's world, when you teach about Yirat Shemaim, people don't like to hear it. I had an email, a bunch of emails, but one I got recently from a new fan, Baruch Hashem. And she says to me, Rav, I saw your story, I saw your shurim, Baruch Hashem, great, all these wonderful compliments for the Torah. I don't think it has much to do with me. But she says, I don't understand one thing. You say that we must have Yirat Shemaim in almost every shiur. But we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Ve'avtet Hashem Elokecha, and love Hashem which is a verse in the Torah. After we say Shema Yisrael, we recite a paragraph in the Torah. It says, and you must love Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your money, and so on. So why is it where you have to, why, does, why do we say we have to love Him if you're saying constantly you have to fear Him? 
What's the answer? Ah, See, you attended more than one shoot. You have to do both. But what's the difference? Why do I constantly mention Yirat Shamaim and every single shoot you're going to attend is going to mention Avat Hashem? Why? Why? Am, I, am, I, am, I, am I some scary guy with some horns coming out of my head? I like to scare people? Why? Because the Torah, if you look at the ratio of how many times it says Yirat Shamaim, Versus how many times it says Avat Hashem. How many times it says you're commanded to fear Hashem. You have to fear Hashem. It's good you feared Hashem. Now I know you feared me. Versus you must love Hashem. If you look at the ratio, maybe it's a hundred to one. If not more. If not more. Meaning for every time it says love Hashem, minimum times, 100 times Yirat Shemaim. Why? Because to get to Avat Hashem, you have to get to the highest level of fear first. You have to understand what it means to love Hashem, to even know that you have a chance to even do it. And that's why Chazal says that in the levels of Yirat Shamayim, the first level, the minimum level that everyone's required to do is fear of Onish. Everyone must fear outright punishment. Minimum level of fear every human being has to have it. If you do not fear punishment, you have no connection to God. The highest level is Yirat Arumimut. The fear of glory, meaning His majesty is amazing. Look how amazing the world that He created. Look at the relationship we, we have. I don't want to hurt the relationship we ha- I have with Hashem. You fear hurting a relationship. You, hear, you fear hurting His majesty. His kedusha. You fear that. That's the highest level. Lowest level, fear of punishment. You can't get to the highest level. You can't skip. After you start fearing the highest level, then you can start loving. Start. Meaning the highest level of fear is the beginning of love. But when you get to the love, that means you have the original fear and the highest fear. It's not that you just are love and that's it. You have to have all of the levels before it. Meaning there is no such thing as connection to Hashem without outright fearing punishment. There's no such thing. If you do not fear punishment, you believe in a different God. Because this God, the God of Israel, said I punish. We're not telling you that that's all you should focus on all day because you'll go crazy. But to say that you don't want to fear Hashem, you don't want to fear punishment, that means you don't want to believe in God. You want to believe in something else. You want to believe in, I don't know, Santa Claus or something. So, to give you an understanding of where Yirat Shamayim is in the Torah, what's the significance of it? In Masechet Shabbat, page 31a, it says something very interesting. What if somebody knows the entire Torah, all of the Mishnah, the all oral Torah, he knows the entire Mishnah. Desh Lakish says, 
V'dat ze seder te'arot. So he knows all of these, he mentions all six parts of the Mishnah. And even if he knows all of them, Yirat Hashem iyotzaro. They use the verse in the Torah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, 6, that the fear of Hashem, that's the storehouse. Meaning, even if you know the entire Torah, everything by heart, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Shulchan Arut, the Zohar, everything, 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 everything we know and everything we don't know. You don't have Yirat Shamaim. It's not worth anything. It's worth zero. Why is worth zero? It says, we learn from the book of Isaiah, to store all of this Torah, to fulfill it, to remember it, to make it a part of you, in the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Yirat Hashem. Book of Isaiah says, fear of God, that's the storehouse. What's the storehouse for what? For the Torah. All the Torah you're going to learn has to be in something. What's it's going to be in? It's going to be in Yirat Shemayim. Foundation of everything has to be Yirat Shemayim. So then it continues. This already tells us, okay, so what if I know all the Gemarot by heart? It's not good enough? No. I know all the Mishnah by heart? It's not good enough? No. I know the Shukhan too? No. I know this one? No. Knowledge is nothing. If you have no Yirat Shemayim, you have nothing. So they continue. So what about if he goes to Shemayim? Shemayim. They can ask him the questions. Did you make time for Torah? Were you honest? Were you this? There's a few major questions they're going to ask you in Shemayim. Betin Shemala. After someone, after 120, goes to Shemayim. They're going to ask him certain questions. Did you expect the Mashiach? One of the 13 principles of faith. You have to expect the Mashiach to come any day. Did you delve into wisdom? You learned Torah. What about your Yerat Shemayim? Do you have Yerat Shemayim? Yerat Shemayim, It says here, if he answered all the questions right, expected Mashiach, and he learned this, and he did this, and he did honest business, all these things, everything's right. No Yerat Shemayim. It says, negative decision on him. He goes to Gainom. Why he goes to Gainom? Why? It says, what's the mashal? We'll give you an analogy. The analogy is, let's say your boss tells you, go put all the wheat in the storehouse. Put all the wheat for all the whole season that we collected, put it all in the storehouse. You, what do you do? You listen to instructions. You go, you put the wheat in the storehouse. You come back, say, boss, I did it. And the boss says, okay, did you put the protection so the worms don't eat the wheat? says, no, I didn't put the protection. You didn't tell me to put the protection. I didn't do it. So what does the boss say? Kamara says, the boss says, it would have been better off if you left the storehouse empty and you didn't put the wheat there than putting it without the protection. It's better you don't learn Torah at all than learn Torah without Yerat Shemayim. Because what happens when you learn Torah without Yerat Shemayim you ruin it. You're ruining the Torah, You're using the Torah to go against the Torah. And this is what we're seeing with these people that are starting to 
decide to make their own halachot. Telling you what Hashem meant, what Hashem didn't mean, but not according to the sages, not according to what Chazal said, according to their opinion, modernized opinion. There's no basis for it right now. He said, listen, Rambam said, this is what Dweck said. Rambam said the best thing that ever happened was Christianity and Islam. No, he didn't. Of course he didn't say that. It's Gohan Nefesh that you're saying that he said that. It's the best thing that ever happened. He never said that. He said that it's good, that it's a good way for Hashem to bring the Goyim closer to monotheism. It's better than outright, outright idol worship, even though Christianity is a form of idol worship. They don't think they're idol worshiping. The Christian that's idol worshiping doesn't think he's idol worshiping. Whereas the idol worshippers of, of years past, or the idol worshippers of India, let's say, they know they're idol worshiping. They believe it. But the Christians that are idol worshiping, they don't believe they're idol worshiping. So the Rambam says it's better that they are in Christianity than in idol worship outright, like a statue. Because when you tell them, listen, your religion is nonsense, your New Testament is shtuyot, it's nonsense, it's all garbage. The only religion, the only Torah, the only thing that's true is the divine book of Torah. They say, oh, okay, easy transition. It's easy transition to go to the truth. Then from someone that's going from, uh, from a statue. Sometimes, not always, but when you're going from a statue, you're saying that the statue is everything, then you believe the statue your whole life. Tell the statue, no, statue is just some marbles that I put together, made into a rock, after a little fire. It's not really God, it's just something I bought from Chinatown, 15 bucks. The real God is the one that's there that you can't see. It's a big transition. Versus Christianity, where they say they also believe there's a God up there, but they also believe there's a God somewhere else. There's a believe there's a, you know, they believe there's different parts, all types of shtiyot. The point being is that in their mind, it's similar. In their mind, it's even the same. Some, many Christians say, we believe in the same God as you, even though it's really not true. So, the Rambam says that it was, it's a good way to bring the goyim closer to monotheism versus idolatry. This Dweck guy says, no, it's the best thing that ever happened. Rambam never said that. So what happens is that when you start mesalef, you start picking and choosing words, changing words, making things look like they're allowed or they're not as bad, you're using something called euphemisms. Euphemism is, in essence, minimizing something. So for example, if someone says, listen, when Hashem says that homosexuality is considered an abomination, the euphemism would be, yeah, it's not as bad as people make it seem to be. It's, it showed us good things. It showed us a good things. And the word abomination doesn't necessarily mean really, really bad. It means you're wrong. So right now, you just cooled me. I was on lava, scared to death, that I'm sinning now, if I'm a homosexual. And now, you just told me, oh, I'm fine. I don't have to change. So the Gemara, Masechet Megillah, has a special place for these people. There's a Mishnah. Mishnah is even before the Gemara. And it says, Amechane Ba'arayot, 
משתקים אותו. Someone who gives you Femistic interpretations for the prohibitions against Arayot, forbidden unions, specifically this issue, specifically sex crimes, homosexuality, uh, you know, nida, uh, being uh, all types of uh, incest and so on. Someone that minimizes the significance of this sin, mashtikinoto, we silence him. What does it mean we silence him? Some of the Mephashim say we kill him. We kill him. I'm not saying go people go kill Dweck or anybody like him because you can end up killing so many rabbis today. The point I'm trying to make here is there's actually Gemara against these people. Why? Because there's no, nothing new under the sun. They're not new. We think he's the first guy to go against the Torah. Who are these people? Who are these people that they're causing so much trouble for us? In Sefer Shmot, open that. Chapter 12, verse 28. Learn something interesting. Mm. Sorry, not twenty eight, verse thirty eight. Chapter 12, verse 38. And it says, V'gam erev rav, alay itam, v'tzon u'bakar m'kneh kaved me'od. And also the erev rav, the mixed multitude, went up with them, and flock and cattle, very much livestock. So this is the first time in the entire Torah that we hear a new expression about a different part of Am Yisrael. A part of Am Yisrael called Erev Rav. Not much really part of Am Yisrael, but meaning a bunch of Egyptians that joined Am Yisrael after the Exodus, after Yetziat Mitzrayim, and said, we want to join Am Yisrael, we want to follow your God, we want to convert, take us. And they're called the Erev Rav. And later on, that's the first time it's mentioned in the Torah. But then later on, we see that in the golden calf sin, it says that the Erev Rav were the ones that actually built the golden calf. And we also see that these Erev Rav, these fake converts, were the very same ones that have been torturing us every single generation. Now, in the Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, Parashat Bo, Masechta de Pisra Yudalet, 14, 
the Chazal is giving us a little bit of an idea. Who is this Erev Rav? How many are they? Are there just a few thousand like some people think? Or are there many? How do they cause so much damage if there's only a few thousand? Because after the sin of the golden calf, Hashem says, kill the ones that sinned. And it says they killed about 3,000 people. He says, oh, you killed all the Erev Rav. So how could there still be Erev Rav today if you killed them? So Nismichilta, the Rabbi Ismael, there's three opinions of how many were actually Erev Rav. When it says in the Pasuk, Vegam Erev Rav Alaitam, they say, what does it mean with Gam Erev Rav? What does it mean? And they also came with them. There's so many of them. How many were they? They say either 120 ribo, 240 ribo, or 360 ribo. What does that mean in English? 1.2 million, 2.4 million, or 3.6 million? In comparison to the Jews, anywhere from double to six times the amount of Jews. Many more than Am Yisrael. Because Am Yisrael, how many was? 60 ribo. 600,000. We had 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60. Here it says, Erev Rav, 1.2 million to 3.6 million. Minimum, minimum opinion is double the amount of Am Yisrael. Highest opinion, which is of Rabbi Natan, is 3.6 million, six times the amount of Am Yisrael. So the 3,000 was just a few leaders. It wasn't all of them. So that's first and foremost when people say how they make so much influence, how there's so many still today, because there was a lot. That's number one. The Zohar Kadosh Parashat Bereshit twenty-five A. It says. Erev Rav were also at the time, were also around at the time of the flood of Noah. And Noah didn't have any mercy on them, and he let them all die outside. He didn't let them into the uh, into the um, ark. So now we have a confusion here, because up to this now, all of us thought that Erev Rav were just mentioned here. First time they came to being was in Yetziat Mitzrayim. It was a bunch of Egyptians. But Chazal is telling us, what Egyptians? What are you talking about? They were already around in Genesis. Creation. Who was this Erev Rav then? It's a good question. In the Gemara, Masichet, Maram Masechet Chagiga, page 13b and 14, says the following. Amar Rabbi Shimon HaChasid, Elu tisha me'od b'shivim v'arba dorot shekumtu li'ibarot. Rabbi Shimon, the Chasid says, These are the 974 generations that were ordained originally to be created. Before the world was created, 
But in the end, they were not created. And the Holy One, blessed as He, proceeded to plant some of them in each of the generations. And these are the brazen-faced people in the generation. So if you remember, many times we mentioned that the Torah was created 974 generations before the world. But if you look at the actual genealogy of how long was the world was around from creation according to the Torah until Moshe Rabbeinu, it was only 26 generations. So where is this 974 generations? So this Gemara is giving us a chidush. It says, Hashem originally wanted to give the Torah after a thousand generations. In honor of a thousand generations, we'll give you the Torah, but he knew that the world wouldn't last. Why? Because without Torah for that long, you destroy the world over and over again. Even after a couple of generations, generation of Noah was not that far after creation, he destroyed the world. Why? The Rishayim. Without Torah, you can't be righteous. It's impossible. It's impossible to be righteous without Torah. So he said, since I already created these Neshamot, what am I going to do with them? Create 974 generations worth of Neshamot. So what am I going to do? I'm going to spread a little bit of them. All these people that don't have the Torah, don't have the Yerat Shemaim. They're not good. They're bad neshamot. I'm going to spread a little bit of them in every generation. There's 974 generations. I created them. I'm going to spread a little bit of them in every generation. Because if I bring them all at once, I destroy the world instantly. Who is this 974 generations? That's Erev Rav. That's Erev Rav. So that answers the question of who are these Erev Rav at the time of Noah? How were they such wicked people? They were created that way. So now, so now, it's a, it's a question of, Tosfot asks, how could Hashem punish them if He created them that way where they sinned immediately? He says, no, he didn't create them to sin, but because they had lack of Torah, they chose to do everything against it. They just had the seven laws of Noah. They didn't want to follow the laws of Noah, so they decided to sin against it, and that's why they get punished. But anyway, the holy book of Zohar, Zohar Kadosh, says that there are five types of Erev Rav. Five types. Who is this Erev Rav? Nefilim, Giborim, Anakim, Refaim, Amalekim. Those are the five types of Erev Rav. Nephilim, if you remember, was in Genesis. Those were the giants. They were half angels, half human. Then Giborim, then Anakim, these were also giants. Rephaim was also their descendants. And Amalekim, we remember Amalek, 
Hashem promised to destroy them. When the Mashiach comes, he's going to destroy them, but when Yeshua ben Nun, Joshua, was beating them finally in a very, very big war that Chazal says was bigger war than the war of Gog and Magog is going to be, because it was full of spirituality and magic and all types of uh, um, spiritual things. He says he was almost beating them. Hashem says to Moshe, tell him to stop. I promise I'll, I'll destroy him for him later on. But I need him to stay in the world. So the Zohar Kadosh in Parashat Bereshit says that there are five types of Erevrav. And who is this Erevrav? So this Erevrav has one mission. One mission on earth. What is this mission? To weaken Am Yisrael. What does it mean, weaken Am Yisrael? Kill them? No. Not kill them physically. Kill them spiritually. Weaken them in a sense of getting them further from Hashem Yitbarach. Why? Because who's their mother? Satan's wife. Zohar Kadosh says, Satan's wife, that's their mother. And she tells them, you're my soldiers, I have the demons that they, you know, that from sins. That's in a spiritual world. And I have you in a physical world. You go get them to do Michalit Shabbat, to eat Taref, to do this, to do all the things against the law. You got convince them. Now the Zohar Kadosh is saying that in the end of times, the Erev Rav are going to be rulers. Now the Amaharchu, Zechit Tzadik which was the big Talmud of the Arizal, wrote in his book, Etz Chaim, that in the end of times, one of the reasons why the Arizal says he knew different things about the end of times, he said, I just want to make sure I'm not there. And many other sages that spoke about end of times, what's going to happen before the Mashiach comes, they prayed not to be alive at that time. Even though it's a, sure, it's a big merit to be alive at the time of Mashiach, they said, we don't want to be alive. We don't want the merit. Lama didn't want the merit. So it's going to be too difficult. The tests are going to be unbelievable. You're not going to be able to know what's right and left. Why? One of the biggest tests is that the Erev Rav are going to be the, some of the biggest leaders in the world. And we're not talking about just presidents of, of, of uh, countries and presidents of organizations. We're talking about heads of kolel, heads of synagogues, heads of Jewish organizations, where their primary job is to cool the nation and get them away from God in the name of Torah. Exactly as the Ramban says, Naval birshuta Torah. He goes against the Torah by using the Torah. And he goes on to say, these are called, these Erev Rav, at the end of days, are going to be called Rabbanim. But they're not Rabbanim, they're Rabbanim. Rabbanim means they're evil sons. So now, 
we have a problem. If you look at the Gemara, Masechet Beitza, I don't know if I brought it, page 32b, it says, the rich people of Bavel in those times were all guaranteed to go to Gehenom. Why are you going to Gehenom? Why? Because you have money, you're going to Gehenom. Because all of them we know for sure, they're all Erev Rav. How do you know why? Because he has money, that's it. He's Erev Rav, everybody rich is Erev Rav. There's plenty of tzaddikim that had money in history and today. Rabbi Udanasi was rich of rich. Rabbi Akiva was very rich. Many of the tzaddikim were rich. Why? Just because he's rich, he's Erev Rav. There's plenty of today, Baruch Hashem. There's plenty of people that are rich and have uh, 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 tzaddikim. What's the problem? But no, it has nothing to do with that. In that generation in, Bab- in Babylon, the rich, how do we know? People come to them, ask for a job. Didn't have any money. He said, I don't want your money. I'm not asking for tzedakah. Just give me a job. Job. Give me some fish. I'll go sell it in the market. We'll split the profit. Give me some tools. I'll go in the market. I'll sell it. We'll split the profit. Give me, I'm not asking for tzedakah. Just give me a job. You already have goods. Give me the goods. I'll sell it. Said, no, no, no. Go, go, go away. Okay, so you don't want to give me a job. Give me tzedakah. Like, no, go die. Go somewhere else. So that's no mercy. Someone who has no mercy, that's Erev Why? Because in order to know whether you are a descendant of Avraham Avinu, you must have certain qualities. One of them, you must be merciful. And Erev not merciful. And you'll notice that many of the wicked people, even if they have a hat and a beard, sometimes they don't have a hat and a beard. Just because they have a hat and a beard doesn't mean good, doesn't mean bad. Hat beard is just a uniform, it's free. The, you'll see the ones that are creating new laws like this Dweck, Drek guy. You'll see this certain things that just don't fit. Certain things don't fit. There's one other rabbi that I know of. For the purpose of discussion, I'm not going to mention his name. Even if you know the name, don't mention it. Because you're not allowed to say he's Erev Rav, he's not Erev Rav. We're not, we don't know who's Erev Rav. We don't know if he's Erev Rav, the other guys, we don't know. All we know is what's the definition of Erev Rav. If someone falls under that definition, he's Erev Rav. That's their problem though. But it's not yours to tell them you're Erev Rav. Don't start pointing, you're Erev Rav, you're Erev Rav. Everybody's a Mechal Shabbat, Erev Rav. Everybody doesn't teach Yerat Shemaim, Erev Rav. No, no, no. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. We don't know. That's for the Mashiach to determine. The point is, we learned qualities to stay away from and qualities to emulate. So, this one big rabbi, very big rabbi, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave him plenty of money, plenty of fame, plenty of everything on at least three occasions. At least three occasions, three different people came to me, told me, I went to him and I told him, I cannot afford to send my kid to yeshiva. Yeshiva costs $500, $600 a month, $1,000 a month, whatever it is. I can't afford. And he said that he has a program in his big organization that he has, in his big shul that he has, 
is a program that specifically people donate to pay for other people's yeshiva. They have money, they want to donate. They say, do you have money for yeshiva? We're going to pay for it for you, scholarship. Because it's very important for a Jew to go to yeshiva. It's very important for a girl or a boy, this little kid, to go to Jewish school. Can't go to public school. We talked about this before. So that's why he has a program and people donate. It's not coming from him. It's coming from donators. On at least three occasions. At least three. There's more. But at least three for sure I know. I verified. Three occasions people came to me. I saw them. I spoke to them. I verified. They said, we came to him. We said, my kid cannot go to yeshiva. We cannot afford it. I lost my job. I lost my business. I lost this. I lost that. Can't afford it. Went to the yeshiva. They won't accept it without money. Which is a different sin of its own, by the way. Just so you know, Rabbi Saimi Salant, one of the women in town, cried to him. She said, they won't let my son in yeshiva. He said, why not? She goes, because I don't have any money. Rabbi Saimi Salant closed his holy books and started screaming at the Keilah, sell the Sefer Torah, sell the Sefer Torah, sell the Sefer Torah. Like, why? 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 We, we, we need a Sefer Torah. He goes, sell the Sefer Torah to go pay for this boy to go to yeshiva. Much more important for the boy to go to yeshiva than you have a Sefer Torah. That's the difference. Somebody who's Da Torah or Shtuyot. So the schools didn't let him because they don't have any money, which is a different sin of its own. But whatever. This other guy, Rabbi, had a program, scholarship. Three people came to him with the kid. My kid cannot go to yeshiva. He says, send it to public school. Three different people don't know each other. He says, it's not my business, send them to public school. Maybe it's paying for his house, I don't know what it's been doing. I don't have no idea. All I know, this is the story, this is the beginning, this is the end of the story. Three different stories. If it was one story, I'd say, ah. If it was two stories, I'd say, ah. If it's three and it's verified, it's already a big deal. It's more than three, I'm telling you three verified, for sure. The guy said, and all three sounded exactly the same. The guy said, it's not my business, send him to public school. What do you mean it's not your business? You make a half a million dollars a year. You should pay for it. How many rabbis make a half a million dollars a year? You should pay for it if you don't have a scholarship program. If you really uh, believe in this Torah, you keep preaching to us. So... Mara says in Masechet Beitzah, page 32, how do you know it's Erev Rav? They don't have Rachmanut. They don't have mercy. They have the ability to help, but they don't want to help. That's one major, major sign between Erev Rav and the rest of Am Yisrael. The second thing, you notice is that they teach Torah with a missing ingredient. They teach Torah but there's something missing. What's missing? Exactly what Rabbi Chalina ben Dosa is talking about. They're teaching you Torah but 
doesn't sound the same. Sounds friendlier. Sounds nicer. Sounds like everybody's okay. They tell you, Habibi, you're okay. You're okay, Hashem loves you. Hashem loves everyone. If He wanted you to suffer, He'd do something else. He loves you. Okay, so why did the Holocaust happen? No, it's some other reason. We don't understand it. Okay, so why do people have a uh, cancer? Oh, no, you know, it's... We don't understand those things. So we don't understand anything. So why does Hashem give us the Torah? So we don't understand anything. We read the entire Torah. We still don't know anything. Why do we have a Torah? Why do you give us a Torah if we're not going to know anything anyway? Just tell us, listen, you're a golem. Put in the world. Don't give us Torah. We don't know anything. We don't do anything. That's it. But he told us. So he says, Rabbi Hanina, you're going to notice that the Torah is a little different. It's missing a key ingredient. The key ingredient meaning it's Yirat Shamayim is missing. Everyone's okay. Now, if you notice, when you read the parasha about the Meraglim, the spies, Hashem wasn't happy with the spies. He told us He's going to give us a land of milk and honey, and we didn't take his word for it. He said, let's send some spies to go check out the land. He said, if that wasn't bad enough, they came back and 10 out of the 12 said, Lashonara about the land. Remember that story, right? You read Parashat Shavua. So now, Hashem wanted to destroy us. But in chapter 14, verse 24... We see that Hashem didn't destroy us, but rather, He punished us. Punished us really, really bad. He told us that we're going to be in the desert for the next 40 years. None of the generations that are alive are going to be alive to see Eretz Yisrael. Why? Why? What, is, what's, what's, what, is he, what does he get out of this? It says, V'yadatim et nuotai. So you'd know how bad it is to go against me. Meaning I'm punishing you this severely. You just said a few words about land. You didn't say bad things about people. You didn't say bad things about my laws. You didn't say that homosexuality is allowed. You didn't say that you're allowed to eat tarif. You didn't say you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. You didn't say those things. You didn't say anything against my Torah. You didn't say anything. You just went and spoke. You said, I sent you to some land. You said you didn't like it. In so many words. For that, none of you are going to see it. You're going to have to suffer. Okay, none of you are going to see it. You can just kill them all. You go, no, no, no. I'm going to keep you here. And you're going to suffer here for 40 years in a desert. Why? So you know the severity of going against me on even something small. That seems small to you. Why does it seem small to you? Because you don't understand what magnitude your actions have in Shemaim. Now, if you ask a little boy, I heard this from 
Rav Nisimi again, Zechat Tzadik Livacha. He said, if you ask a little boy, how big is this star? He'll tell you, oh, it's the size of a coin. But you know that some stars are bigger than the sun. Why does he think that the star is so small? Because he's really far away from the star. He's far from knowledge of where the star is. So Rabbi Israel Misalant, in the book Or Israel, he says, if we knew what Gehenom really is, which he describes it a little bit, it's just a little bit. In the beginning of the book, he describes it a little bit, Gehenom, a little bit of fire, a little bit. Rabbi Yisraeli Salat, a little bit he talks about it. He says, if you knew a little bit about the fire in Gehenom, a little, you'd be so scared that just not going there, not going there as a result of our actions is enough of a reward. Just not going to Gehenom, that's already worth living righteous. Keeping all the mitzvot, tefillin, Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi, anything you want, 17 tefillin, 5 Shabbats, whatever. Just do anything, just don't go to the fire in Gehenom. That's what Rabbi Yisrael says. If you know the fire, just a little bit, a little bit of Gehenom, a little bit, what it is, not going there is enough of a reward to be righteous your entire life. So the fact that you're asking for reward, Bichlal, means that not only do you not know what you're really getting when you're not going there, you don't know what real reward is, but you don't even know what the punishment is. That's how far you are from the star. You're worse than the kid that thinks the star is a coin. When Hashem told Am Yisrael, I'm punishing you for 40 years to be in a desert. Why? So you know the consequence of going against me. For something small. So you know. He's not talking to them, he's talking to us. If it was just to them, he wouldn't write in his Torah. Because everything that's written in the Torah, it's to us, not to them. So when you're taking out that ingredient of fear of the consequence of the price of sin, then we all think that the star is just a coin. The sin is far from us. It's not so bad. So what? I drive on Shabbat. I'm driving to Biknesset. So what if I have a girlfriend on the side aside from my wife? It's not a big deal. So what if I waste seed? So what if I eat tarif? So what if I steal? So what this? So what that? Everything is so what? Why? The rabbi with the uh, beard and the hat, or the no beard and the no hat, or the top hat, or the small hat, or whatever hat, the guy that's a masalef, that's a really an Erev Rav, not a Rav, an Erev Rav, he told me it's okay. He told me everything's okay. I'm a tzaddik. Just make sure the check clears. As long as the check clears, everything's okay. <clears throat> the word Erev Rav means evening rabbi. <laughs> So now, when you see that there's an ingredient missing in this Torah, 
this. You see, you have a problem. You have a problem. So now, how do you know if someone has Yirat Shamayim? How do you know? I tell you I'm scared. If I tell you I'm scared of God, does that mean I'm scared of God? How do you know if somebody's scared of God? You don't know what's in their heart. I, how you know you're scared of God or not, if you have Yirat Shamayim or not, is if you ask yourself, what does Hashem think? On a regular basis, before you do things, okay, I'm about to do a business deal, what does Hashem think? I'm about to make a bracha, what does Hashem think? I'm about to lay tefillin, what does Hashem think? I'm laying tefillin, what does Hashem think? I'm reading tefillin, what does Hashem think? I'm reading Torah, what does Hashem think? I want to watch TV, what does Hashem think? If you're constantly asking yourself, what does Hashem think? Then you have a chance that you have actually serious Yerat Shabbat. It's good. You're a good position right here. But you don't ask yourself, what does Hashem think? You have zero Yerat Shemayim. That's an easy self-test. But I know somebody else has a Yerat Shemayim. The only way you can tell, at least have a chance of being able to tell, is through their actions, how they behave. So first and foremost is how they live. If someone is constantly a kofir Torah, someone is constantly going against the Torah, obviously you have no Yerat Shemayim. Someone just likes abusing people for the sake of abusing people. Like this one guy has a fun time insulting me and Rav Mizrahi on the internet for the last year. He just creates his own alachot, creates his own sibot, creates his own whatever, his own da'at Torah, he's his own posek, he's his own everything. He loves insulting me in public. Loves it. He enjoys it. The guy is a mamasa uh, champion. But, oh Hashem... We're passing the test. We're not responding for the most part, uh, you know, the way I would like to respond. Uh, simply because it's good for my neshama to have people like that abusing me. Number one, chose other people that have Yirat Shamayim, that these, you know, that these people are idiots. And number two, when someone embarrasses you in public, you get to inherit all of this chuyot that they have. Now some people say, what chuyot does this guy have? It's not Hashem, he has something. <laughs> Zod Hashem, has something. Because then it's not a good deal for me. But anyway, you don't have to worry about people abusing you in public. Let them talk, let them say. It doesn't make a difference. Unless it's going to hurt the public in some way or another. But uh, in general, it's all shtiot. The point is, is that you have serious issues where people say they claim they know Torah, they claim they know a lot of different things, but you see there's a missing ingredient. How do you know if they have this ingredient or not? From their behavior. So first and foremost, how do they behave under pressure? Second of all, how do they talk? Does it bother them if somebody else sins or not? If it doesn't bother you that another person in Am Yisrael is sinning, you're very, very far away from Yirat Shemaim or connection to Hashem. And the reason why is Rabbi Yonatan Aibishit said, he said, the biggest level of, of sinat chinam, baseless hatred, is seeing another Jew sin and not saying anything. Why? You know that by him sinning, he has a train coming right at him. He's going to get punished for it. There's no suffering without sin. 
he sinned, he's going to get punished for it. You know he's going to get punished for it. You don't say anything. You're an evil person, he says. So, the Torah says that is a very, very serious mitzvah. Rebuking your nation is a very serious mitzvah. And in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, it tells of a very interesting Mishnah. It says, the cow of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah used to go out with a strap between its horns against the will of the sages on Shabbat. So Mishnah here, in so many words, is trying to teach us that even though it's a Baal Chaim, even though it's a cow, you're not allowed to have it carry anything unless it's for the purpose of managing it. So for example, if it's for you to make it go a certain way, she's allowed to have something on her head. But if it's like adornments, bells, or things like that, she's not allowed to carry it because it's considered Chilul Shabbat. Okay? There's more details to the halacha, but that's not the story. That's not the, the key part of the story that I want to talk about. Key part of the story is that it says that the cow of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah violated Shabbat. In so many words. His cow violated Shabbat. You got that so far? Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, his cow violated Shabbat. So the Gemara asks, how many cows did he have? How many cows did he have? Wasn't he rich? Wasn't Rabbi Yazar ben Azayah rich? And Gemara says, yeah, he was so rich that just his tithe, his maser, was 12,000 cows per year. His maser. That means it's 10% parnasah. He would have 120,000 new cows every year. But he says, one of his cows, Shabbat. one of his cows. So why are you mentioning this one cow? Okay, one cow was, he forgot the bells on it. He goes, you don't understand. It wasn't even his cow. So why was this? Why is, why is, it, why is the Mishnah saying his cow is a Mechalel Shabbat? It's because he inherited the sin for that cow. Why? It says, because his neighbor who was a woman... This widow, she had a cow. And the cow, she left the bells on her, on the cow, which was a violation of Shabbat. And Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, the Tana Kadosh, didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't tell, hey, lady, lady, you know this cow, it's a Mechalel Shabbat, this cow. Take off the bells like it's a tadika. Because when the cow violates Shabbat, it's like you violated Shabbat. He didn't say that. So they said in Shemaim, they said he's a Mechal Shabbat. The cow is a Mechal Shabbat. Said Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, one was able to revive the dead. He took the sin. Why? He didn't rebuke the cow. The cow! You understand? He did Shabbat for the rest of his life for this. So the Gemara continues. He says, whoever has the ability to protest against a member of his household. You have one of your sons is a Mechalit Shabbat. You have your daughter is Shem Echem going out with a goy. You have, uh, I don't know, parents, this, that. You have people in your house are going against the Shem. 
and you're not saying anything at all. You stay quiet. Like, no, no, it's my brother. I don't want this. I don't want to offend him. I don't want this one. I don't want. I don't want to turn him off. Everybody doesn't want to turn anybody off. They're already off as office can be, but nobody wants to turn anybody off. It says, "Nitfas alan shebeto." He is punished for not saying anything. He's punished for the sins of his entire family. Everyone that is sinner and he doesn't say anything to them, he takes the sin too. They take the sin also, but he also takes the sin. You keep you keep telling them as often as you can. You're as far as the rebuking law, you have to continue telling them until they either beat you up or they threaten to beat you up. Right. So So it says you must rebuke your brother, but don't get to a point of sin. Meaning, you have to know how to rebuke somebody. So you can't just say, go, let's say, for example, there's some fools that see people that are violating Shabbat in Israel, and they start throwing rocks at them. That's not rebuking anybody that's actually making both of you mechal and Shabbat. So that's obviously a fool. That's, a, you know, that's what the Gemara is talking about, or the Torah is talking about. So at the same token... There's also foolish people that in Israel there is a in the Keilot, the Charidiot, the really, really religious sections of Israel, they forbid 100% for anyone to have a smartphone, for anyone to have a non-kosher phone, to such an extent that some people take it upon themselves where if they see somebody in the community, they don't know them, they see somebody in the community with a smartphone, they take the phone from their hand, they start throwing and smashing on the floor. Or they start yelling at them in public, embarrassing them. Lomit bayesh, you should be ashamed of yourself. You have a smartphone. It's not kosher. It's not this. Now this is an idiot. This is not what the Torah is talking about. This is exactly what Torah is saying. Don't do. Why? Him having a smartphone. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not good. Maybe it is kosher. Maybe he's not looking at bad things. You don't know for sure. But you embarrassing him in public. David Amela says you have no share of the world to come. It's much much worse than his smartphone. You understand? So, point is that you have to know how to rebuke. So you can't just go embarrassing people in public, say, oh, Bechal Shabbat, you're Rasha, you're Marusha. No. You have to know how to do it, talk to them in a certain way, bring them to a lecture, have somebody else say it. You know, there's different ways. You have to know the person, you have to know how, how to deal with certain people. Also, a very, very important thing about rebuking, in general, it doesn't work, at least not in our generation, for most people that are just did tshuva, to rebuke their family who hasn't done tshuva yet. You have to do it with love. Love is a given. But the reality of it is, if you go, for example, or to your parents, and or he goes to his parents, or you go to your parents, tell them, listen, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, they're going to tell you, go back to your room. Why? Because they're always going to look at you as little baby, like I look at my baby Sarah, two years old. She's At 28, she's still going to be baby Sarah, two years old. Because you're still a baby. To them, you're still a baby. So go rebuking your parents is just not going to work. How do you get your parents to do tshuva? Let's say, for example, as a hypothetical example, if you want your parents to do tshuva, if they haven't done tshuva yet, how do you get, get somebody else to do it? Why? Because then they're going to look at another adult. You, you're always going to be a child. You're always going to be a child. So that's number one. Again, this is general. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes the kid does help his parents do tshuva. Actually, there's a nevoah, there's a prophecy. At the end of times, Gemara Masechet Sota, page 49, says that the kids will help their parents do tshuva, but in general, as a rule of thumb, it doesn't work because the parents will always look at you as a child. 
Second thing is going back to your old friends and telling them to do tshuva. Sometimes it works, sometimes it backfires. It depends how, what kind of friends you were. If you were respectable friends and, you, and they always viewed you as a leader, it may work. But if you were a party animal just like them, it may backfire. Why? Because last week you were snorting cocaine with them. This week you're just not doing it. They're like, yeah, listen, next week he's going to come back. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to you. Why? Because they don't believe your story, even if it's two years old, the story. So what do you do to help them? You bring somebody else to help them. You bring them to the shul. You give them a CD. You show them a clip on, on YouTube, something like that. So that's the second thing. In general, when you bring somebody else to rebuke them, you bring somebody else to show them the truth, that's still considered as if you did it. You don't have to do it yourself. But the key is to do something. So Chazal is saying, if you don't do anything, you get punished for it. Right. Well, you have to do something. Yes. You have to do something. So if you... If you can do it yourself and you think it can work, try to do it yourself. If you know for sure it's not going to work, then get somebody else to do it. There's a lot, there's a lot of like, rules on rebuking people. Like, you have to do it a certain way. Yes and no. Meaning? Like, this is, this is what I've learned, that there's, there's a certain way that needs to be done, otherwise don't do it. Meaning? Meaning certain rules, like well, I, we just went over the rules. The rules is don't don't get to a point of sinning as a result of rebuking. Don't embarrass them in public. Uh, obviously, it has to be in a respectful way. Yes, I mean there are certain things, but at the same token, it's a uh, appeasing people doesn't work either. You have to tell people when they're sinning. You have to tell people when they're not. Like so, for example, when a rabbi says. Um, listen, it's okay for you to drive on Shabbat for now, maybe next year you'll stop driving on Shabbat, that's not rebuking, that's not going to work, that's going to backfire. And the reason why that's going to backfire is because the guy that's driving on Shabbat and you're telling him it's okay for now, when you tell him it's not okay, a year from now he's saying, you know what, it's not okay for you, but it's still okay for me. If it was because in their logic, which is full of Yetzirah, they say, if it was okay in the eyes of the rabbi last year, it's still okay now. Sure, so that's why in most cases it's better to bring a professional. It's better to bring somebody that does it for a living, somebody that knows how to rebuke, somebody that knows how to teach. Generally the best way to do it is to bring people either to a Shiur Torah or show them the Shiur Torah, either on YouTube or on Torah Anytime or our website, bezlatashem.org, bring them a CD, uh, you know, some type... Well, you're not going to know which rabbi. You have to bring them a rabbi that's going to tell them the truth. So the thing is, though, is that if you bring them a rabbi that's just going to make them feel like they're great, then you're not going to help them do tshuva. To bring people, like we said in the beginning of this year, we have to bring people higher. We can't bring the Torah lower. So, for example, a lot of people say, no, listen, I don't want to show them your CD because you're really, really harsh. I'd rather show Rabbi so-and-so CD. I said, yeah, but Rabbi so-and-so doesn't help anybody do tshuva. Like, no one does tshuva. Everyone feels good about themselves after hearing Rabbi so-and-so. So, yes, you may get your mom, dad, friend, sister, brother, or whoever to listen to this rabbi because he's a wonderful speaker and he's eloquent and he's this and he's that and he's intelligent. Great! Just nothing's going to happen. Aren't 
One is rebuke, one, one, one is rebuke. Yes, but again, it's the, the, the misunderstanding that we have is that we think that the way of love does not include rebuke. Both ways include rebuke. So, the former Gdolado in previous generation during the time of the Holocaust. He was born in 1874, but he was around even during the Holocaust. He was one of the Gdolado, Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, Zechat Tzadik V'Kadosh Tivracha. In his book, The Epic of Mashiach, he writes a few things that are very, very interesting answering your question. It says, in the beginning of the book, is that he sent a letter to young Israel in 1938. And he says that the ultimate cause of all the suffering that the entire people, entire Am Yisrael have, is because they forgot the Torah. So by encouraging to study Torah, one saves our nation physically and spiritually. And anyone who remains indifferent to the program of this nature obviously transgresses the passage do not, sta- do not stand idly by the blood of your brother. So here, he's saying that the reason, he's giving us mamash, a reason and a verse and a, and a source of the cause of all of the suffering of Am Yisrael. At that time, he's saying it's forgetting the Torah. So what does he mean by forgetting the Torah? Well, we just forgot who Moshe Rabbeinu was. We forgot who Avraham Avinu was. What do we forget? We just tell the guy, listen, Moshe Rabbeinu, Guy with a beard went on a mountain, had Bukhot Abrit, Sababa, we had a barbecue and everything. Avraham Avinu, great guy, made everybody do tshuva, he had a son, was willing to even die for Hashem, Yitzchak, he had a son, Yaakov, great people. Five minutes, tell them the whole story of the Torah. We forgot the Torah? That's what Abiyah Wasselman is saying? No. He says the following. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, he says, my sheep, error, meaning uh, the Mephoshim are, are, are translating it as, as my nation is making a mistake. What mistake? Because of the leaders that they're choosing, a.k.a. the rabbis that they're choosing, it's creating an iron barrier between Am Yisrael and their Father in Heaven. And because of them, it's almost impossible to bring everyone back to Torah. These people have their own Torah, meaning these Erev Rav, have their own Torah, their own sages, their own Gdolim. Meaning, who's meaning their own sages, their own Gdolim? They think it's not Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham Avinu, Yitzhak Avinu, Rabbi Akiva, all those people are Gdolim. They think Ben Gurion, Netanyahu. They think those people are Gdolim. They think uh, all of these philosophers are the Gdolim. Says they have their own Gdolim. They wear a kippah. They wear a hat. They wear all those things. Uniform is no problem. But it's different Torah, different Gdolim. They're bringing a new medium of Torah that's causing darkness to rule in the mind and in the heart. 
Instead of bringing the people pearls, they're bringing him stones. In place of Torah ideals, meaning in Bet Knesset, they give their readers and hearers ideas of atheism. Instead of getting them close to Hashem, you have a keeper, you have a Sidu, you have a Tanakh, you have everything, but you're encouraging everyone to become like a believer in atheism and evolution and all things like that. One example I heard from Rav Mansul in his lecture about this Dwek guy, he says that he has a Book of the Month club. In the Book of the Month club, the first book that he recommended himself, the first book he recommended in the Book of the Month club of his own Keila is a book written by an atheist about atheism. This is what he recommended to his Keila. And he gave a lecture about the book. So, now, Rav Wasselman wasn't exactly giving people on the head every two seconds. He was serious, and they asked him one time, how do you remember the entire Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, the Gemara, the Mishnah? I mean, so much Torah you remember. How? How do you remember all of it? He goes, to tell you the truth, I don't have that good of a memory. Like, even more of a question. How do you remember the Torah if you, you don't have a good memory? It says, it says in the Torah, in Pirkei Avot, we learned it last week, if you forget your Torah, your life is on the line. Remember that? So he says, in bygone times, he says in previous times, a hundred years ago, he says, a hundred years ago to him, so this is in the 1800s, not that far from us, a few generations it was required of the leaders to be endowed with Torah. And they had to have Yirat Shamaim and no Torah. But in the days of Mashiach, anyone who possesses an adequate amount of chutzpah is going to be crowned Gadol. Anyone that has chutzpah to say, I know this, I know that, I know this, I know that, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he knows, he knows. How do you know he knows? How do you know he does? No, he passed the test. He passed the test. He's a Dayan. He's a rabbi. He's a, he passed the test. He's a Gadol. Gadol? What Gadol? Gadol in the bathroom. What Gadol? What Gadol? What are you talking about? Everybody's a Gadol now. It's what a Muslim is saying. All he has to have is chutzpah. The greater his chutzpah, the more he will be considered reliable. So the fact that he's giving a lecture about a new way of looking at the Torah... Oh, wow, he's innovative. He's innovative. He just went out of the box. You guys are just picking on him. You're picking on him because he's modern and you're old news. That's what they're saying. So he says that's what's going to happen in the days of Mashiach. And this is the best part, right here. It says, and what's another thing, another sign you know the Mashiach is right around the corner? No rebuke will be allowed. You're never going to be, and no one's going to allow you to go rebuke in every Knesset. But we know from previous times, throughout all of Am Yisrael's history, all of Am Yisrael's history, from the beginning of time until Mamash, just a few generations ago, there were rebukers, meaning professional people amongst Am Yisrael, who wandered from place to place and rebuked people. That was their job. What's the earliest source? The prophets. What was the prophet's job? Rebuke the people. That was their only job. Tell Amisai, you're a sinner. 
Go back, do tshuva, or Hashem's going to kill you, Hashem's going to punish you. That's what, the, that's what the prophets did. Moshe Rabbeinu was the biggest rebuker of all. So from the beginning of Ami Israel's history, even in the days of Avraham Avinu, there was always someone going from city to city rebuking people. In the times of Mashiach, no rebuking. He says, even the actual community rabbi would rebuke from time to time. He says, just a hundred years ago, the Magid from Duvna was around that even the Vilna Gaon asked him, please rebuke me. Give, teach me some Musar. The Vilna Gaon asked Magid from Duvna, come, come, tell me what to do. Tell me, that's what he paid. He said, come, tell me what to do. Right? That's what Shlomo Melech says. He goes, come, tell me what to do. I'm going to tell the Vilna Gaon, they call you Gaon. They call you the Vilna, your, part of your name became genius. I'm going to tell you what to do. He goes, yeah, yeah, please, no, tell me what to do. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me how to do tshuva. He says, even the Vilna Gaon, that was a Gaon, everyone knew he was a Gaon for all generations. He knew enough to know that he needed to do tshuva. Even he had to do tshuva. So he got, he paid somebody, the Magid from Duvna, come. No, give me a drasha. Tell me what to do. How do I do tshuva? He said, just a hundred years ago, the G'dolador was asking to get Musab. Tell me what to do. Please, let me, help me do tshuva. The G'dolador. Not some Amaretz Tembel that doesn't know anything. The G'dolador is asking for Musab. Please help me do tshuva. He says, not long ago, the Magid of Kelm, Help many people do tshuva. How? Fiery sermons. Giving it to them on the head. Even the Rishonim, it's evident in the times of the Rishonim, there existed an exp- the exposers of sin in every single city whose office was to seek out the sinful. In the times of the Rishonim, there was at least one person or even actually like a company of people. Their job was to find the sinners and help them do tshuva. It's not that long ago. It's not like, we're not talking about Avraham Avinu. It says, nowadays, rebuking has ceased. Speakers, we have now more than enough. More than enough speakers. But these speakers... They don't rebuke. It's not their custom to rebuke. It's not their custom to bring words of Torah upon their lips. So first he said it's not their custom to rebuke. Then he said it's not their custom to bring words of Torah. So what are they teaching? In the Gemara, Masichet Shabbat, page 32, Rashi is putting commentary on a verse and he says, Rebuke, Musar, and Torah means the same thing. It's synonymous. The synonymous, the two words are synonymous. Musar and Torah means the same thing. Why it means the same thing? Because, because without Musar, you have no Torah. And if you're learning Torah, you have to learn Musar. So, Rav Wasserman over here is saying... They don't teach rebuke, they don't teach Torah. Meaning, because they're not teaching rebuke, they're not teaching Torah. They can say Divrei Torah, they can tell you about Abraham Avinu, Yitzchak Avinu, this Avinu, and that Avinu. 
אבל זה סתם תורה. So who are these speakers? They're like paid party officials who lull the masses with sweet dreams, either of redemption of Israel, like the Mashiach is going to come, he's going to save everyone, world redemption on the wing of internationalism, meaning everyone, kumbaya, all the goyim, the yehudim, everyone together, don't worry, you're tzaddik, you're navon, welcome everyone. Hashem loves you. That's who the speaker is. And this is a hundred years ago almost. Imagine today. If he was today, he thought he was getting home already. No one's saying not to look for good points. No one's saying not to look for good points. No one's saying that you, you can't give people compliments. I, I even said it earlier today when we talked about homosexuality. And I said that even though it's a huge sin, it's not a mitzvah to, to abuse them, to insult them. As a matter of fact, you have to do the opposite. You have to give them compliments and bring them closer. So even if you're obviously bringing the guy that's the biggest sinner in the room closer than obviously bringing someone that's lesser of a sinner closer to good things. But we've taken it too far. We've taken it too far to such an extent that we're only talking about the good and nothing bad. So most people today think they're perfect. They think they're fine where they are. And anyone that's doing more, that's a preference. Like it's a machmil. It's like a, a stringency. To be modest today is considered a, a stringency. Even though it's basic halakha. Uh, to, to have, you know, different laws in the Torah that are basic, people think are stringencies, simply because we're ignorant. So now, the Masechet Shabbat is saying something critical. It says that if a person does not rebuke, he ends up inheriting the sin. Now, One of the laws of the Torah that we know is that all of the good prophecies must come true. All of the bad prophecies don't have to come true. So this is especially pertinent to the times of Mashiach where there's multiple ways of how the end of times will happen. One of them is Milchemet Gogu Magog. Another one is a, uh, a big star will explode. Another one will be an earthquake. There's multiple ways of how the end of the world will happen. And how the world will come to redemption and so on and so forth. Each one is worse than the other. There's also a possibility, there used to be a possibility of everyone doing tshuva, but we know that's just not possible. We're out of time. But nonetheless, there are different promises that Hashem said that's going to happen when a Mashiach comes that are good. The people that are righteous will resurrect with the dead, will live, will be protected, and so on and so forth. The Bet HaMikdash will be rebuilt. So, the Gemara in Shabbat, page 55a, says that there was only one time in history that Hashem canceled a positive decree. One time. He decided that there was supposed to be something good that was prophesied to happen, but he canceled it. 
only one time in history. During the times of the Beit HaMikdash, he decided to cancel the good. Why? Because they didn't rebuke. Because the tzaddikim did not rebuke the people, he says, it's so bad not to rebuke, I'm canceling a good decree. It's to that extent. So, again, the world we live in is upside down. We have a world where rebuking is frowned upon in many places. So, for example, you go to many Chabad centers, and it's almost like they've never heard of rebuke. And this doesn't necessarily mean every Chabad, this does not necessarily mean every Chabadnik. But if you go to many places in America, for the most part, the ones that I've been involved in, whether it's in New York or here, they even get to a point, in Arizona, they even get to a point where they openly say, we do not teach or allow Musar inside our place. We are against Musar. We're against Musar. We teach Torah be'ava. We teach loving and nice and beauty and this and that. That's what they say. The problem is, is that whoever says that, as a Chabadnik, is either a liar, an idiot, or a kofer b'chachamim. Who's chachamim? Their own chachamim. Why? If you look at what's the main thing that's being taught in Chabad, the main thing, main work that they teach, Tanya. Bala Tanya, right? The Tanya Kadosh was one of the forefathers of Chabad. Chabad, Tanya, it's like synonymous. If you look at the actual book, Look at the Tanya. Not the middle, not the end, it's a few books. The first one, first chapter, page 38. It says, whoever violates even a minor prohibition that's rabbinical is termed a rasha. As we learn in Masechet Yevamot, page, uh, chapter 2, and also in Masechet Nida. Moreover, even he who himself does not sin, someone who's not a Rasha himself, someone who's not a Rasha, he doesn't sin, but he has the opportunity to forewarn another person from sinning and fails to do so, he is termed a Rasha. Meaning, the Balatanya knew the Torah. What does he say? He says, you were not a Rasha yourself. You, didn't, you weren't a Mechalel Shabbat yourself. But you knew somebody that's a Mechalel Shabbat. You didn't tell him anything. He says, now you're a Rasha. You're the wicked one. So, here's the key. If you're already going to call yourself a Chabadnik, you're going to take the lineage of the holy sages from Chabad, holy people, amazing people, some of the greatest people that ever lived were in Chabad. Some of them were willing to die just for mitzvah tzitzit, for mitzvah Chanukah, for mitzvot that we don't even think are important, they were willing to die for it. So if you're going to call yourself a Chabadnik, you're going to call yourself part of that great lineage, you're going to call the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that's your rabbi, great, follow his Torah. That's all. 
This is not a, like some secret part of the Torah. This is what you teach. You say you like Tanya. Okay, go to page 38. Follow what it says. Stop going against it. So why not? Why don't they do it? Because it has nothing to do with being against Musar. The ones who don't teach it, the ones who are against Musar, has nothing to do with being against Musar. Because the whole Tanya is about Musar. That's what the book's about. What is it about? Why don't they do it? Because teaching Musar is bad for your pocket. Teaching Musar is bad for donations. I will never get as much donations as a rabbi who doesn't teach Musar in this natural world. Unless there's a miracle of some siyat vishmaya, Hashem has major mercy on me, sees that I'm trying really hard. But in reality, in a normal world, it's just not going to happen. The church will always get more donations than the holy synagogue. The rabbi that's traveling from city to city, giving lectures for free, trying to help people do tshuva, will collect 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks at a time at most. The guy that's giving lectures about nothing, to do with nothing, and telling everybody they're great, 50,000 at a clip. Why? Because it doesn't obligate anyone. It doesn't obligate anyone. So what's the tachlis? What is the critical difference between the Torah of the real teachers of Torah versus the teachers of Musa? The teachers of Torah of how it really is. Now many people today, unfortunately, value Secular studies. They value secular studies. They like to, a lot of rabbis like to read books about things outside of Torah. Which, if it's not monitored, can ruin them. How do I know? I spent most of my life in that world. So what qualifies me to know anything about secular studies? I'm about to tell you a few things, not from my own ego. All of what I'm telling you is not even worth one word in the Gemara. One word of knowledge in the Gemara you remember by heart is worth more than all the things I'm about to tell you. But the point I'm trying to explain to you is to prove a point. In the secular world, I was considered a Talmud Chacham. In high school, I was an honor roll. I got a student athlete award. I was uh, one of the top students in the school had a, nearly a perfect GPA at a big university. I got an online master's while I was still working on Wall Street. I had eight different securities licenses, each one requiring an exam, no less than the bar. Each one was no less than the bar exam. Average grade for each one of those tests, average person is failing. The average person fails each one of those exams. Average person. We're not talking about small exams. We're not talking about, you know, just an elective exam, like just take it and it's nice for you to do it. Thank you for coming and just pay us a fee. Talking about 250, 300 questions with topics of thousands of pages worth of material. Hard, hard stuff. Eight different licenses. Series 7, 24, Series 63, Series 4, Series 53, Series 79, 99, and I think one or two other tests. 
eight different licenses. The average person in the industry has one or two. I had a library full of all these stereotypes of books. I wrote and published over a hundred papers. Long story short, secular studies, I got that down. I was a machmir in that world. All of that is worth nothing. Why? Because one word of Gemara is worth more than all of it. And I'm telling you from experience. From experience, I know what Torah is, a little bit, what I learned, a little bit that I know. I know a lot about secular studies. I learned psychiatry, psychology, biology, chemistry. I know. That part, I was pretty good. I know that world. And I know a little bit about Torah. The little bit that I know about Torah is worth more than everything that I know in the secular world times a million. One word of Gemara, you remember it by heart. Hashem. Hashem is on the page. It's already better than everything I know. It's worth more. But people value secular studies. So, the reason why I'm saying all of this is because usually if someone is going to give you an opinion about something that they don't have any idea about, then it's not really a valuable opinion. If someone tells you money is the root of all evil, but he's broke and poor and he never had money in his life and he has no idea what money really is, it's not really a valuable opinion. A homeless guy that never had any money and was pretty much homeless his whole life cannot teach you how to become rich. A guy that's divorced six times can't give you marriage counseling. A guy that's a drug addict can't tell you how to quit. You understand? So you have to be a bad experience. You have to have actual experience and knowledge of the field. So secular studies, Hashem, I spent wasted my life, but nonetheless, spent a lot of time learning it. So now for all of those people that spent a minute of their life trying to acquire secular knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. If you're trying to acquire it for the sake of your career, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a lawyer, you need to be an accountant, you need to be a broker, a financial advisor, something like that, it's for your profession, it's different. I'm not saying that. But if you just like to read books about the stock market just because it's fun, or you like to read about, I don't know, some other, I don't know, Fiddler on the Roof and uh, Harry Potter books, and all types of shtiot like that, or psychiatry books just for fun on weekends, you have to understand something very clearly. The difference between the Torah study and secular study is only one thing. Torah study obligates you to have your Shemayim. Secular study obligates you to do nothing. Nothing. Which means, if I was here... I was telling you, listen, I've trained over 135 different people to become salespeople. Some of them became multimillionaires. And I was going to tell you all the different things that you need to do to become a top salesperson. And if you came to my meeting, by the time you left, you'd be crying, but you'd be knowledgeable. Why? Because the advice would be the same. I would give it to you on your head. I would tell you everything you're doing wrong. You're lazy. You're this. You're that. Everything I'm telling you is Musa. That's what I taught. I told people they're lazy. I told people that they're late. I told people that they don't try hard enough. All the things that self-help does. All the things that leaders do. They teach you stuff that is going to help you. What's going to help you? Things that you're lacking. So the self-help gurus of the world, what do they tell you? You're late. You're lazy. You're this. You're that. All your deficiencies, they remind you of them. Stop it and do better. But because it doesn't obligate you to do anything, because you already paid the fee, 
You don't care if they tell you it. You say, wow, he's right. He's a genius. Wow, he told me to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Wow, what an innovation. Wow, he told me to, to study until 1 o'clock in the morning. Think about it for myself and like, and like reflect. Wow, this guy's like, it was worth the $5,000. You understand? Why? They're not, they're not telling you anything different than me. They're telling you you're lazy. They're telling you you're not doing enough. They're telling you you're not working hard enough. They're telling you you need to improve. They're telling you all those things. Same thing. It's just that they're not obligating you. They're not telling you that if you don't do it, there's going to be a punishment. I'm telling you, whether you do it or not, it doesn't make a difference to me. You still pay me. Whether you do it or not, it doesn't make a difference. So you feel like you've already done half the job anyway. I paid the guy. Whether I do it or not, it's my responsibility. Whereas with somebody that's teaching you Musar, teaching you Yachamayim, number one, you're not paying. And number two, if you don't do it, you're, you're in serious problems. And it has nothing to do with me. That's the difference. That's the difference between secular studies and Torah studies. So when a Erev Rav, a fake rabbi, removes the Yirat Shamayim, removes the Yirat Shamayim aspect of the Torah, then what he's doing in reality is that he's teaching something that's divine the same way that you teach a secular book. He's turning Hashem Rachem, the Torah, into a history book. And that's why he's Erev Rav. So if your rabbi is teaching you Torah like it's a history book, he's Erev Rav. Any questions? No? I had to have some questions. We didn't cover everything. You can be, hopefully, you're, you know, I don't have anything against Chabad. I have, against, I, have, I have something against people who don't follow what Chabad is supposed to be. Right, in their level, in their level, it's, yeah, in that generation of where Balatanya was alive, Benoni was definitely very, much, much higher than what a person would be today. Um, the point is, is the one thing that you would learn from all of the books that the real sages have written in, in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in previous generations, not the books that are written today for the most part, but previous generations. Some of the books that are written today are good. I'm not saying all of them are going against rabbis of today uh, that have serious yirat mind, but some books are garbage. Some books are just complete garbage that are out there. So you have to be very careful. And uh, Personally, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd uh, invest, if it's a book that's written of a rabbi today, I'd do extra investigation before I'd read it. And plus, I'd make sure that I'm reading all, I read already all the things that were from previous generations. But nonetheless, if you look at previous generations' rabbis, you'd see that we've had a continuous decline of what standard was. In the days of Gemara, the, stand, the, the lowest level 
was probably higher than the highest levels today. According to according to the days of the Gemara, yes, but the Arizal Arizal a, uh, uh, even gave a pirush on it, and even the rest of Chazal said uh, in the Gemara that a, in the end of times, a small mitzvah of the uh, last generation will be considered like a big mitzvah of the previous generations because it's going to be a much bigger test. But that doesn't mean that someone can be a mechal of Shabbat. It just means that the same expectations of previous generations are not expected of us. So we're not expected to meditate for an hour before we pray every time. We're just expected to pray. Like if you look at the Gemara and Brachot, it says that each one of the sages meditated for one hour before every prayer. Just, just meditated before the prayer. Then the prayer itself was an hour. And then hour after, meaning that every single prayer was three hours. If our total prayers for the whole day was a total of an hour, we're already doing okay today. You know why? Because it's a different generation. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're not, we, we can't pray. We have to pray. Just that it's not expected at the same high level as it was in the past. But there are certain things that are considered minimum requirements. So, minimum requirement is to keep Shabbat. There's no like Oh, no, no, just because you're in the last generation, maybe the last generation is allowed to violate Shabbat. No, there's no such thing. There's certain things that are expected, there's certain things that are not expected, but definitely we're not at the level of previous generation. It's just a known thing. It's a, uh, we're not even at the uh, shoes of just two generations ago. We're not even talking about the uh, 300 years ago. We're talking about 100 years ago, 70 years ago. No, no, yeah, no. According to the, according to the Tanya, we're far, far away from home. We're far, far, far away from home. And one of the big things, actually, the Rav Wasselman said, is that um, here is that one of the major things that the last generation is constantly trying to do is to act like goyim and but you know and be next to them. And the problem is, is that Hashem said, "I've separated you from the nations." So when you're separated, you're mine. When you're not separated, you're the Goims. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. So the Goim, they're not obligated to learn Torah like we are. So they have a lot more free time. This is what he writes. The Gentiles have free time when their work is done. And so they look for amusement and sports to pass time. A Jew, on the other hand, has no spare time. After he has finished his work, it remains his duty to occupy himself with the study of the Torah. If someone is incapable of studying by himself, he must find a rabbi to teach him. And the Jew is also required to dedicate some of his time for the fulfillment of divine precepts of the good deeds to help others to the best of his ability. So he's talking about specifically the end of times. The Gemara says that only two things are going to help a person at the end of times. Torah and Gemilut Chasadim. So if someone fulfills the Torah and does good deeds, they have nothing to worry about uh, in uh, the end of times. But the problem is that if th- someone is learning the Torah, but the Torah is of the Erev Rav, then his Torah is worthless. Why? Because he's gonna, the Erev Rav is going to teach him how to violate the Torah using the Torah. You understand? So it's very, very, very important 
to understand fully who your rabbi is, what is he actually teaching you, how close it is or how far it is from what the sages said. And again, also it's very important to understand what do the sages mean by, you know, we are a lower generation. Does that mean that we're allowed to violate Shabbat? Or that just means that we're not, you know, expected to be David Melech that woke up every 15 minutes. Like he didn't sleep for more than 15 minutes. Okay, we're not expected to be David Melech. Fine. He slept 15 minutes a day. Fine. We're not expected to be David Melech. No problem. But we're still expected to learn Torah. Instead, that people need to use their common sense to know where the limitations are. But when we don't use our common sense, but instead we use our heart, we use our pocket, we use those things, and we, that, what, that leads us to use euphemisms that minimize the Torah and the significance of the sin. And for that, the sages said, we have to quiet them. We have to go against it. We have to fight it. So it's not that we're looking for fights with anyone. It's not that we care about... Uh, what this guy says, what that guy says. Everybody has different shitah, different strategies. If you have a shitah that works to get people close to the Torah, no problem. The problem is, which Torah are you getting them close to? If the Torah is of Am Yisrael, wow, amazing, you're the best, I'll cheer you on, I'll be the best guy supporting you, I'll put you on my page, I'll put you on different pages, I'll even donate if I can. But if you're teaching them Torah that's against Hashem, then I'll be the first guy that goes online and says things that, that nobody should listen to you. Why? Because that's my job in life. If I want to make money, I go back to Wall Street. You understand? So this is the important part that we learned from Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Yirat Shamayim, foundation of the Torah. No Yirat Shamayim, no Torah. Questions? When was the, the good retreat that was canceled because of lack of Hebrew? Uh, it's Beth HaMikdash. Beth HaMikdash. We had a... Uh, yeah, I'll read it to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll read it to you in a second. Tuv uh, Rabiachah. A good decree never was, was never issued by the mouth of the Holy One, and then he retracted it for a bad one, except in the matter of failing to rebuke. Meaning, as a um, Hashem issued a uh, favorable decree. Okay, we talked about that. He issued a favorable decree. So it's written in the book of Ezekiel 9.4. Hashem said to the angel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and mark the letter Tav on the foreheads of the people who sigh and moan all over the abominations that are done in the midst. So those are all the righteous people. So initially, Hashem was planning on protecting all of the tzaddikim from the punishment that was, he was going to bring to Beit HaMikdash. He was planning on, on protecting them. He said, yeah, they learned Torah, so I'll protect them. So I wrote in the Torah. I protect those that fulfill my Torah. So the Gemara here is saying, the Shekhinah came to Hashem and said, no, 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 Hashem, wait. You also wrote in your Torah, 
you wrote in your Torah, you must rebuke your people. These same tzaddikim that you want me to put a sign on them for protection, they didn't rebuke the rest of the people. And so the sages say, yeah, but the, the generation was so wicked that even if you would have rebuked them, they wouldn't have listened anyway. So the Gemara responds, Hashem knew that, but the people didn't know it. Meaning, Hashem knew that even if you would have rebuked them, they wouldn't have listened. But the tzaddikim didn't know whether they're going to listen or not. Meaning, it's not your business to decide whether he's going to listen or not. It has nothing to do with you. You are still obligated to, to make sure that you rebuke. So because they didn't rebuke, Hashem says, ah, you know what, you're right, kill them first. So when original decree was to protect the tzaddikim, original decree was to protect the tzaddikim, but then the Shekhinah says, no, no, but they didn't rebuke. Says, oh, you know what, not only don't protect them, kill them first. So that was the first time in history that Hashem turned a good decree into a bad decree. So this also teaches us about the significance of rebuke, uh, where it's, it's, it's that bad if you don't do it. Now, a lot of people have told me, yeah, but what about the rabbi that told me that if you know it's written somewhere, that no one ever knows, but it's written somewhere, that if they're not going to listen, then you don't need to do it. So yes, it is written somewhere, it's in the Gemara, um, that if you know that someone's not going to listen, don't rebuke them. But it's not as simple as that. It's talking about if you know that they're not going to listen to a rabbinical rebuke. Meaning, if you know that, let's say, for example, you see your, I don't know, somebody in your house not doing the not wearing a kippah. See them, they're not wearing a kippah. Or they're not doing a tilatidaim. And you know that if you tell them something, hey, listen, you should put your kippah on, they're going to flip out. No, what do you want? What are you telling me? Who are you to tell me? Uh, they're going to start losing their mind, ruin your Shabbat, ruin everybody's dinner. Don't say anything, because you know he's not going to listen anyway. Why? It's a rabbinical mitzvah anyway. It's rabbinical. It's not that it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. But it's not big deal enough. He's not going to, you know, gain home for it. Let it go. another time. That's only if it's rabbinical. But if it's deoraita, if it's a biblical sin, you have to rebuke it. Whether you will listen or not is not your business. So if you see somebody not wearing a kippah, if you see somebody not doing the tilatidaim, if you even see somebody not doing a blessing on a food, and you know that if you tell them they're not going to listen, you don't have to tell them. But if you see somebody driving on Shabbat, if you see somebody that's not modest, if you see somebody that's being wasteful with, you know, with their seed, and so on and so forth, that are biblical sins, you have to rebuke them. To the point of where they're going to either beat you up or threaten to beat you up. Now, obviously, we don't have to get to that point. People are difficult, but they're not that difficult. And you're already going to get the message well before it gets to that point. But that's the misunderstanding that we have in today's generation where people think that, oh, if they're not going to listen to me, then I don't need to do it. That's not true. That's not true at all. You have to do it if it's a biblical violation. Um, so again, just a simple few words change the whole thing. One, you know, a couple of words change the whole thing.
So that's, that's the thing of, of what happens when Erev Rav use euphemisms. They change things on one extent to the other. On one end, they tell you that the big sins are not really big. Another thing, they tell you that the big mitzvot are not really big. You know, like say, say, say oh, listen, you have to rebuke. Nah, it's not that important. He's not going to listen anyway. A lot of people tell me, no, listen, I tell them, listen, why don't you give CDs out, free CDs. I'll even give you the CDs. I'll even buy myself, whatever. I'll get somebody else to pay for the CDs. Just give them out. Like, yeah, but what if they don't listen? What if they throw them out? It's not your business what they do with them. You just have to be a delivery person. You just deliver. You just put the CD in the mailbox. Put the CD in their hand. Put the CD on the table. Put the CD on the counter. Email the link. Do you think business companies think about, oh yeah, when we send this junk mail to 50 million people, a lot of them are going to delete it? Do you think they all they have meetings about that? Oh, do you know how many people are going to delete my email? Isn't that offensive? We worked really, really hard to make this email. We're going to send, press send, and 50 million people are going to get it. You know, probably 49,990,999 are going to de- delete it. Yeah, great. We're just doing it for that one guy because the one guy, the president, makes the whole thing worth it. You understand? Kava Homer for obviously for Chuba. You give out a thousand CDs. If one guy listens to the CD, does Chuba, it's it, you're finished. We're not betting on the fact that everybody's going to listen to the CD. We're not betting on the fact that everybody's going to listen to the lecture, you're going to send them a link for free. We're not betting on the fact that you're going to send every text and everybody's going to listen to it and they're going to call me say, listen, I want to do this, I want to change. No, we're not betting on that. We're betting on it like marketing. Marketing, you send 1,000, 200, 20% are actually going to press it. Out of the 20%, probably 20% are actually going to listen past a few seconds. And out of the 20%, maybe, I don't know, a certain percentage from that are actually going to do something about it. But if you keep doing it over and over and over again, the percentages increase. The key... It's you keep drilling. It keeps like little drops, little drops, little drops, little drops, little drops. And trust me, I've seen people go from being complete koflim to Baruch Hashem, Baalei Chesed. You just got to keep doing it. You can't think of, oh, he's not going to listen, she's not going to listen, he's this, he's that, he's going to be offended, he's not going to be offended. No offended. Press just like you press send on the video of a monkey eating a banana, press send on a video of a human being teaching Torah. Oh, but you're too harsh. Who, it's not your business. None of that stuff is your business. How he's going to listen, whether he's going to like it, whether he's not, it's not your business. You just keep pressing send. Send, 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 send. Don't send me him anymore. Send. Don't send it anymore. Send. Don't send it anymore. Send. How do I know this works? Just a, uh, two weeks ago, there was a guy, Israeli guy, went to India, Shemelchem. Went to India, India or one of these places full of idol worship. I think it was India or Indonesia. We constantly sent him shoeing. And he constantly repeated, Don't send me, don't send me, don't send me. And we constantly sent it to him. Family sent it to him. Send him, send him, send him, send, 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 send. Don't send it anymore. I can't hear it anymore. Send. Oh, I'm not listening to it. Send. Send. He came back a week ago. A week, two weeks ago. He said, All my friends went with Goyot went to the, you know, idol worship places, all that stuff. Crazy, crazy. Happy to be home. It's like, so what about you? What about you? No, no, Baruch Hashem, I didn't do anything. Oh, it's good. He goes, yeah, yeah, I got to tell you something. What? You know what kept me out of it? What? He kept sending the Shulet Torah. 
I couldn't do it. He kept sending the Shure Torah. You understand? Don't send, don't send, don't send, send. Cost you nothing. Keep sending. You can save in the Shema. Send. Anything else? Bauch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.